actually dig into this now. Dig into it. So, uh, yeah, as I was saying, like digging through bird shit. Oh, God, there's so much of it in this. Um, Well, we'll get into that in a moment. But before we get to that, uh, this is Alex, and that is... It's Adam. We're here once again. Yes, we are, and this is Double A. Um, and we're just by ourselves here for once. It's lonely. Well, we're not by ourselves. What are you talking about? Uh, I guess there's the cats. Yeah, Alex's orange cat, Surya, is ravenously murdering a small toy. She's going to town on a little kicker. It's on a, Alex's carpet. Yeah, it's a, it was a new present, new kicker. Uh, that would actually, very fittingly, you'll notice there's uh, parakeets on it. Oh, parakeets. You're right. You know, that wasn't planned. Yeah. Um, I mean, but- you, you know, in case uh, some parakeets come at us because of what we have to say about this movie oh yeah um this we is, have our protectors here that's true we got cats to, to, to hold, hold to them at safeguard bay. alex's recording um moment. yeah courtesy of uh, that was actually a present for uh citri and surya by a friend of the pod jade oh there you so. go well that's nice the hell was that sound oh here here they come the parakeets are coming uh actually let me go check in on the cats real quick we'll resume this in a moment all right so that was actually a false alarm false um, alarm but I just wanted to make sure that one of my cats didn't actually like knock out one of my screen uh, screens on one of my windows and was in the parking lot because that would be bad. It's true. I mean, you know, so I was visiting my family's dog for the holidays since yeah. it was just Christmas. Well, I should say I was visiting my family and the dog just happened to be there because my family has a dog. But this dog loves doing something where the dog picks up a toy, runs around with a toy going bark, 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 jumps up on the sofa then drops the toy from the sofa onto the ground and then looks oh, up like, oh, no, the toy fell on the ground. Will you Whoops. please pick it up? <laughs> exactly. Oh, whatever shall I do, human? <laughs> yeah, you think it's an accident, except he does it yeah. every single time without fail. Oh, I, I, they know. They know exactly what they're doing. They definitely know. Uh, yeah. But we're not here to talk about our adorable, the, the adorable animals in our lives. That's right. We're here to talk about filthy animals that poop all the time. Yes. That's right. It's birds. And the boy and the heron, specifically. And the boy and the heron, right. The latest Hayao Miyazaki film um, came out, I think, a decade after the last? Yeah, it came out in 2023, 10 years after The Wind Rises in 2013. Which is actually kind of funny because... So I've just caught up on The Wind Rises as well, and there's right. a statement in there about how uh, the best artists have like 10 years in which to produce all their greatest stuff, and oh, then they, they basically are done. So it's kind of funny. Yeah, Miyazaki might never be done. He's, I don't know. He's bucked that trend. Wait, so Alex, you're saying that you watched all of The Wind Rises in preparation for this podcast on The Boy and the Heron. And and I have watched uh, The Boy and the Heron twice. Oh, geez. Not so you, you saw them both subbed or dubbed? Subbed. Okay, so you I, didn't get to hear Robert Pattinson make funny noises. I, I haven't. I'm saving that for later. I, you know... Obviously, there's something to be enjoyed in both subbed and dubbed right. takes. I'm I'm not going to be here, you know, vouching for one or the other. But what I will say is that both of these movies specifically connect to elements of Japanese history where it felt weird to me for the yeah. first time that I experienced them to be in English. I mean, do you know who voices the main character of the Boy of the Heron? Sorry, you know who voices the main character of The Wind Rises in Japanese? I do not. Hideaki Anno, the director of Neon Genesis Evangelion. What? <laughs> I'm not making this up. It's true. <laughs> okay. I did, would not have expected that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so okay. Hideaki Anno is actually someone who's worked on Ghibli films in the past. I mean, I guess technically it was Topcraft, I guess. But so Anno famously does the God Warrior scene in Nazca the Valley of the Wind before he sort of goes on to make his own right. works at Gainax. And so Anno finishes the third rebuild film. Supposedly he's very depressed. And then Miyazaki says, hey, come and voice the main character on my movie. And that's how he does it. 
or you know i would not have expected a anime director to voice randomly voice a character like but sure yeah it's like one of those weird six degrees of separation things you can draw a line between miyazaki and so many people in the industry i mean that's probably certainly true um yeah. so i should ask since you've said that you've watched the wind rises and you watched the boy in the heron two times how many other miyazaki films have you seen do you want to talk a bit about your all miyazaki of history? them oh okay so what was your first one <laughs> It's, uh, I am predictable in that it was spirited away. Okay. Um, I probably was. So was it, was I already in college? No, I must've still been in high school at the time. Actually, when did the wind rises came come out? Okay. Wind Let's rises see if we can came solve out this. in 2013. Spirited away came out in 2001. Oh yeah. So I definitely saw that while I was still in high school then. Okay. And it was kind of weird because not a source that i would have expected to be like the source for this yeah but at the time it was my aunt who is like basically like my rich aunt quote unquote oh fascinating. um who's always writing the latest trends she was responsible for me being introduced to harry potter and oh, wild. hayao miyazaki's work through spirited away because when spirited away came over here it was like the talk of the town yeah um so i got introduced to, to hayao miyazaki through like the big one and then went back and watched everything. Yeah, that makes sense. So did you watch it on DVD originally? DVD. Or? Oh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, because yeah, I watched it on DVD too. That's really fascinating. I don't think I saw Hayao Miyazaki film in theaters until Ponyo. Really? So that was the first That's one I saw in theaters. And then actually the next one is The Boy and the Heron. Oh, wow. So everything else has so, been on uh, DVD. Yeah. yeah, or on VHS. I wonder, maybe that's how... Because I feel like Miyazaki's films are something that's like kind of passed down in this country, right? Mm -hmm. Like probably seeing it on the big screen is the way you're meant to see it. Because often like his films are really big and grand scale. Which is, it makes me wonder whether that is part of the reason why I noticed the backgrounds in this one so much more than I have in his other movies. Like Maybe. I have more thoughts about the backgrounds in, in this the boy movie. And the Heron, yeah. yeah. But that's that could also be because there's something unique to the backgrounds right. in this one. Do you have like a favorite Miyazaki film? <sighs> that's a hard question to answer i think edgier you know college me would have been like nausicaa the valley the wind because oh, like yeah. nobody's watched that one and look at me i'm so special um uh, or alternatively maybe howl's moving castle because i wanted to pick the one that wasn't spirited away and it wasn't like uh you know i don't know uh mononoke right. although for a while it was definitely Mon princess mononoke was probably my princess answer mononoke is pretty wild. so my wild answer has changed over okay. time i think and it, and it's difficult because i would almost have to do a, a rewatch of his whole catalog to have a better answer um i have developed an a tremendous affinity for my neighbor totoro over the yeah. years mainly just because totoro is such a wonderful mascot that i've just kind of grown to sort of relate to so oh for sure I yeah, mean, Totoro is a guy. really interesting movie because it feels like a lot of Miyazaki's stuff has this incredible intensity to it. Like something like Princess Mononoke has that anger to it. And Nausicaa the Valley of Wind is like this epic kind of fantasy, right? Right. And Spirited right. Away has a real sense of spookiness to it. But Totoro, I mean, it has some kind of magical outrageous but moments, own... but it's much, it feels much more laid back right. in an interesting way. Uh, I I, I do want to turn this question back on you, Adam, but I will say that one thread that that runs through all Miyazaki films is they all have some kind of um, connection to fantasy or science fiction yeah. or in some way have dreamscapes in them where mm. there's some flights of fantasy. And I say that because The Wind Rises is very much the exception mm. amongst his movies in that it's very straightforwardly a historical fiction. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because when The Wind Rises came out, so I should confess, I have not seen The Wind Rises, so I'm a fake Miyazaki fan, clearly. Nah. But so The Wind Rises it's came out fine. around the same time as uh, The Tale of Princess Kaguya, right? which was uh, the last film of Miyazaki's compatriot and teacher, Isao Takahata, who worked together with Miyazaki on several right. earlier projects. Uh, Princess Kaguya, that film was more of a fairy tale Right, that had this very experimental animation style. While Miyazaki's The Wind Rises, I guess, like you said, is more grounded. It's about someone who right. lived during real history and like lived through historical which, events. Which is why now, finally having seen it, it's wild to me that people would think of it as a bookend to his career. Yeah, because it is the least like anything in his career. Yeah. Well, he did say, I guess, after he made it, that he was going to retire, and look how that turned I out. Know. And and now, 10 years later, we get what I would consider a much better bookend to his so? uh, career. Because I, think, I feel like it incorporates elements of all of his previous works more successfully, or really at all, compared to The Wind Rises, which I know that that was apparently said about it, but I yeah. didn't see... I mean, again... It might have been people projecting because it was perceived of as the, you know, bookend. Right. But I did not see that in my watch through. I see. At all. Yeah, I definitely need to see it um, so I can think about it. It's on HBO how Max did, so or Out of Max curiosity, or... how does The Wind Rises hold up for you compared to the other Miyazaki works that you've seen? That you've uh, seen? <sighs> so that actually is a great platform into our comfort into what i actually i have thoughts about right. the wind rises which actually connect very much into the boy in the but i'm actually curious before we get there okay. about your own platform into miyazaki's work like how did you get there okay so how the heck do i start talking about miyazaki um let's see when i'm which, which little, one was the first when one? i'm a little kid i watched my neighbor totoro Okay. which my mom calls the Dust Bunny movie. <laughs> Not wrong. <laughs> because it does have like dust sprites in it, right? I guess. And also you can probably look at yeah. Totoro and say, oh, it's Dust Bunny, I guess. Like it's sort of bunny adjacent. But I remember nothing about my neighbor Totoro um, when, I w when I was like really, really young. I rewatched it a year or two ago in preparation for some pieces about Hayao Miyazaki I was writing for a website. And definitely a lot of what I saw in it I kind of recognized from past times and I've seen it on television or whatever, but definitely there's a lot in there I don't quite remember. So I wouldn't say that My Neighbor Torture was my first Miyazaki just because even though it was, I don't have like a strong feeling of watching it, I guess. Now, what I do have a strong memory of watching is Spirited Away, which of course I watched on DVD. Right. I It took me actually several years to see it because I had a relative on my mom's side of the family who was like about a year older than me he watched and like loved Spirited Away, but for whatever reason, I didn't see it. I honestly have no idea why. Um, eventually, we end up renting it, I think from like a blockbuster or something. This is when we're visiting family friends in New Hampshire. They have they had a farm that was sort of out in the middle of nowhere, and I believe it was winter. It was snowing outside. I was indoors watching Spirited Away. Uh, Chihiro and her family goes to this mysterious derelict town, right? As right. Uh, Alex's cat is climbing all over his PS3. Surya was doing some wild acrobatics, and I was making some faces in response because this cat is ridiculous. Uh, I am so sorry. No, it's I'm okay. And you. <laughs> so uh, Chihiro and her family, they go to this mysterious derelict town through a tunnel. Uh, Chihiro goes wandering away while her parents are feasting on this suspicious dish. 
she finds Haku, who's this mysterious yep. guy just standing out there. Haku says, it isn't safe. Get out of here. He blows on his fingertips and like produces this magic, right? And Joe Hisashi's music kicks in. And right there, it's like magic blasting out of my television right into my face. Just like, and not magic in like, a, oh, everything's sparkly and pretty. Magic as an old school sorcery. Right. Like you are bound to your chair. Everything around you has become possessed. And then you were a high Miyazaki fan for the rest of your life. Just like being like the sun inside of your television, scorching your face off for however long that movie was. Then I finish it. I stand up from the sofa. I go out for a walk with my parents through the snow, I think on cross country skis or whatever. And I am so like taken aback by Spirit of the Way as I kid, as, as like a young kid. I then sit down and demand that my parents now watch Spirit of the Way. <laughs> and then I watch it for a second time. And then they did. And I feel like they were also, com- I, I told this story in the one of the pieces I wrote about Miyazaki for Slash Film back in the day. But so I sit my parents down to watch Spirit of the Way. And we get past the beginning part into when the bathhouse is woken up. And right, Haku right. is trying to smuggle Chihiro into the bathhouse. You know, spirits, it's funny right? because yeah. when I first saw Spirit Away, it was it was also with my parents. Oh, there you so go. So that is, it's kind of an interesting connection. But anyway, yeah. sorry, go no, continue. It, no, it's totally fine. So Haku is trying to smuggle Chihiro into the bathhouse, right? And there's this little frog that appears and says, you're a human. And Haku like traps the frog inside of a bubble. And I strongly remember my mom just yelling, that's a Pokemon. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> the boy has just trapped the Pokemon inside of a Pokeball. Like, that's i mean you know after you've been just hit with like that power right from the screen and you're just searching vainly in hope of finding something recognizable and that was what she landed on like okay this will make it make sense this will explain you know weirdly though she's not wrong because pokemon owe a lot to yokai yes for their existence as like what they are in japanese lore presently and well the bathhouse was just a bunch of yokai just hanging oh, yeah. out. So, no, like, true. you know, weirdly, that is not wrong. <laughs> yeah. Now, if I'm going to talk about other Miyazaki stuff, although there are a bunch of films I have seen I do enjoy, like the music in Laputa, Castle in the Sky right. is great. You have, uh, God, what else is there? I mean, honestly, Future Boy Conan, really early TV show that he worked on. Is you know, that's one I have not seen. Well. I have it on Blu-ray. So, so to, to note, I've seen all his movies, but I have yeah. not seen that. I can definitely, like, maybe we can watch it in Anime Club or something. But if I was to say, one of the most, like, the other big influential Miyazaki project for me isn't actually an anime he did. It's the manga series of Nausicaa the Valley of the Wind, which for me Fair. is just an all-time great. I know other folks don't like it as much. And it is interesting because Miyazaki worked on it for something like 10 years you can see his preoccupations and his style evolve over the course of it. Like he sort of changes from someone who was telling this more kind of fantastical story about a young woman living in this post-apocalyptic fantasy world, right? It evolves from that into sort of the bitterness of the Princess Mononoke era. Miyazaki was really kind of questioning, like, can humans and nature exist together? Like... I think the Nausicaa movie ends on this note of sort of harmony between nature and humanity. And the manga series really just ends on, I mean, I, I guess I won't spoil it here because you really should read it. So I have not have read it. it. Okay. I, I've only seen the movie. So you can see where my limitations lie in terms oh, no, of like, totally I've fine. seen a lot of, I've seen all his movies, yeah. but I have not. Well, actually other than that loop in the third movie that he's not. The, the end of Nausicaa just so. really had me sitting in my chair going, 
he really did that, didn't he? I yeah. was just shocked that that was allowed, that he sort of... I mean, you can argue that the the end of the comic is like getting a little close to eco-fascism. I feel like Miyazaki is someone who just has really strong so... opinions about nature and about human humanity's like inherent bitterness and whether we can ever find some kind of equilibrium, right? So that's a good pivot point back right. to what I was, what you made me think of yeah. uh, earlier. If, if that is a good time for me to like insert oh, no, that. I think that's a good time. Um, which is that in both the wind rises, mm. cause I'm going to be, I, I just, I'm having a hard time not thinking of the wind rises now as somewhat of a, um, companion film. Sort of holding them both in your hands. The Boy and the Heron, right. Yeah. Uh, because they're both connected much more deeply in terms of like actual historical fiction, mm. like deeply, to World War II yes. than any of his other works. Now, obviously, there's influence all throughout because the modernity that shapes Japan comes out of really the era leading up to World War II, then to essentially what happens in World War II, and then the era beyond it. And that is the relationship with nature, which through modernity becomes tenuous. And that's all of us, right, at this point. Yeah. But the reason I bring this up is because I I was very curious to see The Wind Rises, especially after seeing The Boy and the Heron, particularly for a few reasons. So The Boy and the Heron is very much of a meditation on the warriors in terms of like what the psychological impact that had on both, I think, himself as a child right the firebombing uh, right yeah. precisely um and also the, the japanese people as a whole i mean you can really read the boy and the heron as an allegory for like the mother is japan the boy is the japanese people and they have to come to terms with their country literally dying in a fire and having mm. to be reborn out of it like a phoenix like it works on that allegorical level birds right right although i don't know if there's a there we never see a literal phoenix in the film yes you do you do when um i think his mother is depicted as in at points looks like almost like a bird in, in flames like you might be right yeah um several times and blink and you'll miss it but there's a tapestry in the movie uh in the um i forget her the old woman who's like later like a younger woman oh kiriko kiriko when you're in her little house like boathouse thing um there is a, that there's a tapestry on the wall of a phoenix right i should also say so, uh we're going to just spoil this entire movie in oh this yeah. episode it's been out for a while you really have no excuse not to see it if you haven't and on top of that this is a kind of movie where you can spend like an hour Ex- trying yes. to explain everything that happens and it will make any difference you'll still be confused by the end 100 100 feel free to listen to all of this go what were they talking about and then watch the movie and say, what were they talking about? This is one of those movies that there's going to be a million YouTube videos being like, this is what this movie really means. Read exactly. the allegory. And like, we're going to tell you what the thing on the on the garden, like Golden Gate means and all that kind of stuff. So there's Alex, like so much to read. Into um, what do you want? So what so, specifically, what do you want so, to say? So where I'm going with this yes. is that I think that there is this conflict within Hayao Miyazaki himself because of when he grew up. In that sort of reconstruction period, especially post-World War II, um, and having to reconcile, I think, some of the feelings that he had about the modernization of Japan in terms Mm. of what that meant, you know, what it meant for them to become a modern and powerful country. Right. And, And having to reconcile those feelings of pride with, I think, what he, you know, with his own pacifism and his own, um sort of return to nature mentality that you see like his ecological uh you know ideology that you see in a lot of his movies right um and the reason i mentioned this is because the wind rises is specifically about uh 
this uh, aer- like uh, aeronautical engineer. That's right, uh, Jiro Horikoshi, Hor- who was responsible for the invention or the not invention, but the creation. He was the lead engineer on the Mitsubishi project that resulted in the uh, Zero. Right. Uh, the air, the fighter airplane that was, you know, the, the famed like Japanese wartime, like World War II uh, fighter plane yeah. uh, and responsible for a lot of deaths. Yeah. So, and of course, Miyazaki loves planes. You look at right. all his movies, there's planes all over the place. Now, there's flying this is, machines, there's Porco Rocco's plane. Right, yeah. Right. I mean, like Porco Rosso, it's, it's right there. Giant right? floating airships um, in Castle in the Sky. And well. Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind as yeah, well has certainly. like a lot of designs that were inspired by like early aviation designs. So, like it's he clearly grew up in sort of the wake of like something that Japan felt proud about being able to modernize to that point having the zero as a point of pride but all of that how do you reconcile that with the fact that all of this was done in the service of this war that was so destructive for someone who's a pacifist and also who's an like has ecological sort of leanings Alex, in his ideology do you know who Miyazaki's father is i actually don't so I'm just going to read this right off of Wikipedia, which immediately disqualifies this podcast as an, ac- as an academic reference. Oh, I <laughs> his father, oh, too late for that. <laughs> Katsuji Miyazaki was a director of Miyazaki Airplane, his brother's company, which manufactured well, rudders for fighter planes during World War II. Okay. So Wind Rises is effectively autobiographical. <laughs> and The Boy in the Heron well, is more also autobiographical. It's more than that. I mean, the Wind Rises is not autobiographical in right. that sense. It's because not literal. But but but, but his guilt, past is connected to that. I yes, understand. I think yeah. is there. Um, but but see, what I'm trying to say by I guess where I was going with this, right, is that I feel like, and I think this is what I, has made the wind rises more complicated for some people, because it sort of parts the curtain and it's like just the thing said out loud rather than it being couched in fantasy and and metaphor and mm. other things, um, because it is just a historical fiction, and in seeing the historical fiction, it maybe makes it cheapens it but also maybe because it was so close to him it makes it harder to address um but i guess what i'm getting with this is i mean that movie got a lot of criticism for oh well you know it got criticism from all sides which is a really funny thing there are people who said that the movie was far right because it was sort of saying well building death machines is okay as long as it's beautiful it actually doesn't say that the movie (laughs) and then there were also people who said this movie is leftist propaganda because right. it says that building death machines is wrong, right. even if they're beautiful. So yeah, no, it was a movie. That, yeah, just like the boy in the hair, another movie which also seems to right have a pretty gotten a pretty varied reception as well. Yeah. Um, but I bring this up because I feel I feel like that same tenuous sort of opposition of of of, of two like things that you really I, I don't know how you reconcile, but I think that's what makes Hayao Miyazaki himself is also there in The Boy and the Heron because, yeah. you know, a lot of, like, what what you have in the tower, what you have in, in well, I mean, heck, his father builds airplanes as well. That's I right. Mean, like, the, 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 the airplane. It's also in there. There's, like, a little mini yeah. Wind Rises section. Yeah, exactly. Of this movie, yeah. Which is why, again, I feel like the movies are somewhat in dialogue with each other. So, oh, yeah. um, but, but, but there's a lot of the, the pathway to that, fantasy that gateway that nexus of worlds is very european looking and mm. there you know it's hard not to read that as that's the modernity that's infecting well, not infecting that's a that's a weird word too i feel like that's editorializing too much you know that's that's, that's a modernity that's influenced japan that's made it into what it is currently I mean, you can and this is a time of change that you yeah. know all of that is going to i think that's reshape. right i mean you've seen spirit away right yes so you know that's one yeah. way you can read that movie right yeah, it's about how the spirits of Japanese culture have sort of become infected by materialism. Right. 
Like now they're selling things to each other. They're buying luxury goods, going to bathhouses and being corrupted by pollution and by money. Right. And Chihiro sort of plays. Well, that's her... a, that's there in a lot of his more modern. I mean, I think oh, Spirited yeah. Away. Even even my neighbor Totoro has a return to the countryside as a critical element of it. That's so true. like, that's there throughout. Yeah, I mean, I should say Hayao Miyazaki was a leftist. I think his politics did change over time, but like back in the 1960s, um, it he again off of Wikipedia, <laughs> he was. Um, hang on, I wrote I wrote this down. Oh, yeah. He was the chief secretary of Toei's labor union in 1964. Right. Um, his film... Okay, not his film, actually. So there's a movie... Have you ever heard of uh, Horus, Prince of the Sun? Or I think The, the Little Norse Prince not. is the title it was originally known as when it came out in the U.S. So mm. Horus, Prince of the Sun, or Hull's Prince of the Sun, it's a 1968 movie that Miyazaki participated in along with other, a lot of other really talented people. It was directed by Isao Takahata, who's again, like came up alongside Miyazaki is older than him like kind of taught him the ropes but is also sort of his creative peer at Studio Ghibli um they Takahata directed it Miyazaki like was the chief animator and a concept artist alongside like another one of Miyazaki's tutors Yasuo Otsuka who's this all-time great animator so Holes Prince of the Sun is in a way a movie about a bunch of folks coming together to form a labor union to defeat the bad guy mm. in the same way that while they were making this movie, everyone on that project, like long before Studio Ghibli had been founded, were fighting the studio to get as much creative freedom as they could. Like the studio kept right. saying, the movie has been taking too long, it's too expensive, put it out immediately, right? And in the end, when the movie came out, there are clearly parts that are unfinished. But because of its great ambition, it became known as like one of the first great, maybe, I mean, arguably the first great Japanese animated film. Um you know, in a way, that I think it's, and this is my thing with Miyazaki. I feel like it's tempting to overrate him because he's so omnipresent. It feels like so many people I know grew up with him. There's this way in which the imagery that he's created has become so overwhelming that it just becomes wallpaper or set set dressing, right? Like it sort of loses its power to shock. But on the other hand, this is someone who was a major mover and shaker not just in terms of making great work, but just in terms of laying out the skeleton of the industry today. Yep. Like anime would literally not be the same if he was not But there. you know, that's the irony of it is because as much as he might've taken a role in rebelling against the, the studio yeah. machine, he's become that very institution now in his older years. I mean, Miyazaki is in Studio Ghibli are a institution yeah i mean it's a studio ghibli theme park yeah Uh, you can watch movies on streaming actually according to so one of the interviews i was reading through in preparation for this organized by a website called full frontal which has a lot of these interviews they spoke to tokiyushi inoue who's one of the all-time great animators worked on this new film the boy and the heron i think it's you know maybe i'm actually maybe i'm misquoting it might be another random thing i saw on wikipedia sorry but like specifically or just the wiki pod <laughs> yeah one of the reasons why studio ghibli allowed their films to be put up on streaming was to help fund this one to make it so they oh, could take their time working on the boy the hair so that's why yeah. everything is on uh on max aka HBO, it may be part AKA of whatever. it i mean i guess also like they've just been working to take greater control of their work to make it available for people to watch to sort of work of G kids to produce dubs maybe that are like more accurate right. to the source material. I mean, I'm not complaining because that's how I was able to watch the wind rises oh, yeah. so conveniently prior to this. But 
as with all of these sort of things, it also instantly was like, man, I should get all of these on DVD again. Because I used to have a lot of his stuff on DVD. And at yeah. some point, I lost that slash. Did you have like the original Disney version? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That yeah. had the John Lasseter introductions. Like, oh, man. Actually, probably. You'll yeah, never for... guess how high on me is. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. It's a little embarrassing now. <laughs> yeah, for Spirited Away. Sort of crapping the bed. So my neighbor strongly. Totoro and all those. Yeah, probably. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah. but you then I borrowed like friends borrowed them and they never got them. There's back one in. thing: will we have Pixar without Studio Ghibli? Probably not in the same way. Right? That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Um, man, and that's wild. I actually forgot. But you're right. Like it's coming back to me now. Like I forgot that Disney was the first to to bring his movies yeah. over. I mean, I think it was. So I feel like wild. it must have been Lasseter pushing behind the scenes to get it out because pe- folks at Pixar were such big. Yeah, and now it's on on Max. I'm sure you that's have other folks there too turn. who liked it. Yeah. yeah. Huh. I mean, Miyazaki was an edgelord back in the day. Look at his interviews. He also like does his part saying, oh, man, pick, like Disney animation so boring, like looking at the older Disney stuff and laughing at it. But he was also someone who said that watching Tomorrow's Joe season two on television was like watching an exhumed corpse or something. <laughs> oh, He's a, wow. Yeah, he doesn't hold, <laughs> he doesn't mince his words. Um, well, speaking of not mincing words. And Tomorrow's Joe too is pretty good. It's it's Osamu Dezuki. Like he's another one of these all time great yeah, yeah. anime directors. Miyazaki is uh, pretty mean guy. He, he wants to be. He so you want to hear my theory about how Boy and the Heron is actually Miyazaki being incredibly mean to everyone around him? Oh, you can't. You don't say. I never would have imagined <laughs> he could read this film this way. No, of, of course. No, but go on. <laughs> so, Let, let's lay it out there. So there's this sequence that like kind of haunted me when. Um, What's his name? Mahito? Mahito. Mahito. First goes into that sort of land of the dead space. Right. Which also... Doesn't happen until halfway through the movie. Right. You're already an hour into the movie. But also, I realized this watching The Wind Rises. There's this... So the one sort of flight of fantasy in The Wind Rises is that there's this dreamscape Mm. that the the main character, um, Jiro Horikoshi, goes into and interacts with this like Italian like airplane uh, maker Mr. Caproni okay. and it's referred to as a, a land of the dream a land of dreams really but also um at the end Jiro Horikoshi as a result of his experience in you know World War 2 and be, being the, the 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 purveyor of this tool of destruction he says that it's also a land of the dead mm, and 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 it made me think Huh, that's very similar to this sort of like alternate like world that you see in uh in the the boy and the heron. Um so again, I really think of these two as companion movies in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, um, notably, and I you know, I don't know if this is an actual distinction in the Japanese. I'm going to make the distinction mm-hmm. in English. Looking at Spirited Away and Boy and the Heron side by side cuz to me that's I mean just like how the wind rises. Oh, there's the also they're, they're yeah. exceedingly similar. Right. Yeah, just absolutely. like how the boy, the wind rises and the boy in yeah. the heron for you are comparable in that way. To me, like putting spirited away and the and the boy in the heron together is useful, not because they're similar, because I think they're at root they're actually quite different, but because Correct. of why they differ. When I, I think was, one is more influenced actually by Japanese mythology, whereas the other one is more influenced by European mythology. I think that's also true. So. But specifically something that stood out to me, and I wrote a piece about this in AnyWire, like, because, of right. course, anyone who watches The Boy in the Heron has to write about it because, like, what the heck just happened? What was that movie? Right. Um, I got through The Boy in the Heron, and a lot of the time during that movie, I was thinking, this spirit world is, like, weirdly empty and dead. Like, yeah, something that really stood out to me about Spirit of the Way, there's this sense that when Jihiro goes to the bathhouse, that bathhouse existed before the movie started. And when Shihiro leaves, the bathhouse still exists. 
and maybe it's a little different after she leaves like the pieces have been rearranged a little right. bit but it has this sort of life to it that persists on its own and i think that's one reason why the movie made such an impression on people because there's this the world in that film has such great vitality and there's so right. many little bits that it just perseveres in the imagination in a way outside of Jiro's own story. It becomes right. a place that people can imagine themselves because it's so well fleshed out. But the world ends. <laughs> yeah. And Boyne Heron. So it's 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 a finite I mean, very finite experience. It only exists, I think, for the span of the movie more or less. I guess that's I mean so where Spirited Away and the Boy and the Heron different for me is that the world and the boy and the heron lacks that vitality. Right. Like when Mahito goes there, there's not the sense that it's some like grand construction that exists outside of him. All living things in it are invasive species in a way. There are people, there are animals, and then there are like the ghosts and the spirits that are there. But to me, there was a sense that it's a place that's been around a long time. It no longer is really habitable by living things. It is flawed and contains all of these systems that no longer mesh together especially well. And that becomes a te- that becomes text by the end of the film. Like right. when Mahito goes to meet his granduncle who runs this whole place, you see, oh, the whole thing relies on this tower of blocks that's just right. about to fall over. But but yeah. you know what it is? Mm-hmm. You know you know what that I what I read that whole metaphor as. Right. Um it, as a metaphor for the imperialism of that era kind of crumbling under its own weight because it was all an illusion. I mean, down to oh, you mean the, in World War Two? Yeah. I mean, or like perhaps. whether it be the, the fascist, you know, movements in Europe or the imperial I mean, obviously like there was a, you know, Japanese emperor prior to this time frame and, and such, but like um but it was kind of the crumbling of that illusion of of power. Because literally the the parakeet king who is very, like, it's very much portrayed. I think the imagery as like, yeah. like a, a, a king or ruler or of that era, right? Right. I, I mean, you, you can, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, I, I instantly made note of the fascist sort of like imagery oh, there, sure. and there's also like a comment about like something, you know, um, for, for the something for the empire or like, which felt very like in in line with like sort of Japanese imperial thought. Yeah. But in any event, like he tries to rebuild the tower um and fails it's true and everything kind of crumbles and then he like smashes it and whatever but right like i think he was the most invested in that illusion um in a way that i think to me makes it seem like it's a critique of those sort of imperial uh, illusions or illusions of, of yeah. power Before we get too far into that do we want to take a step yeah. back and talk about some of the characters just so we have a well, s- so, just so the, the the audience has a sense so i just wanted to we should do that but um yeah. I wanted to kind of finish my thought on like, okay. you know, why this is a, th- this movie is ultimately Miyazaki pissing everyone off. Right. Or, or basically telling everyone not to, um, not to be like him, uh, mm. like go learn from someone else. Um, so when Mahito first makes it into that land of the dead, he notices this golden gate. Yes. And on this golden gate, there is this thing that is written that is those who seek my knowledge shall die. Yeah. And that line instantly made me curious because I was like, this feels like it's quoting something. And it's a very odd sequence because the gate right. never, seemingly never really comes up again. No. So I looked it up. Yeah. Because I was curious. I was like, well, what the hell does this mean? Um, And I have a theory that the person behind that is Miyazaki. Oh. The person who shall not be woken up is maybe himself. Oh, that he's sleeping in there. Right. So... Because, so I went to the one other source of truth on, on the internet that is now Wikipedia, and that is Reddit. Okay. <laughs> and I found someone who asked this very question 
of like, what the hell does this mean? Because I can't reference it anywhere. Can you ask, can you say where we might be able to find this on Reddit? Is like a particular thread? Uh, it's, so this was an R Ghibli posted 16 days ago by okay. someone called Environmental Call 537. Okay, just wanted to make sure we were giving proper credit. Yes, so people and, can and the out. person who responded was someone e, uh, called E underscore Hoba, H-O-B-A, um, who effectively in response to this question, I won't read out the whole question, but it pretty much was, what the heck does this mean? <laughs> was someone who said that um, it actually more, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing this, that it, it more directly translates to those who learn from me shall die. Uh, well, actually, isn't that actually, that is exactly the line mm. uh, that I just read, isn't it? Something like that. Those who seek my knowledge shall die is what I read. So, yeah, so that's probably a more direct uh, th- uh, translation. But what it says is it's a fictional Chinese four-character aphorism. It is written as, and you can't, I can't say this in Chinese. Some fans guess that it's quoted from Fusao Hayashi's short novel. Um, the character who wrote that phrase is a Chinese traitor in the Japanese puppet government. So he wrote, those who learn from me shall die on the gate. It's based on Chi Baishi's aphorism, those who study from me will live and those who imitate me will die. Mm. And that is the critical line it's Miyazaki to me. throwing down the gauntlet. It's basically Miyazaki saying- You want to call yourself the next Miyazaki? You better Don't think again. copy me. Yeah. yeah. Learn from me. Don't just do as I did. And that also feels like a slap in the face for Goro, doesn't it? I mean, I wasn't going to bring up Goro Miyazaki. I mean, yet. it just feels mean at this point. But 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 does it? Like, you know, like it, once I read that line, I was like, fuck. He's yeah. like straight up telling people, stop imitating me. Figure out, learn from my work, do your own shit. Yeah. I mean, it's it's tricky. God, there's so much I want to talk about, but I think we should talk yeah. about some of the bones <laughs> of this movie uh, um, before we get too much further into the leads, right? Uh, so... How what do, is this movie about? Yeah, what is this movie about? <laughs> uh, there's a boy named Mahito. In the very beginning of the film, his mom is killed in the firebombing, right? Right. Like she's in the hospital. hospital burns down. His mother dies. Uh, he has these nightmares of it frequently. He still hasn't gone over it. And yet, several years later, he goes with his father to the countryside to live with Natsuko, his mother's younger sister, on his estate. Because they are now married, I think. And Natsuko also has a baby. And his aunt mother... Yeah, no, there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on. If you wonder, why is it that Miyazaki is so obsessed with young women who, like, have boobs and are mother figures? Mm. This movie is definitely, mm. there's lots of food for thought here. <laughs> if if you're someone who's like, does Miyazaki have a fetish? Or someone who's like, what are, why, what are Miyazaki's feelings about women? What exactly are going on here? There's plenty of food for you here for your future. It, like, it truly book. is. This movie, you could argue, boils down all of his works. For better or worse. Yeah. I mean, I would even say some of the bits, some some bits of that I could kind of take or leave. However, so let's move on. Um, so Miyazaki's on this, on this enclosure. There are several older people who are there who he befriends over time. There's also a very large, scary heron with someone inside of his mouth who is terrifying, who keeps bothering Mahito and flying around and attacking him um and and tries to call him into this mysterious world and almost succeeds but Natsuko saves Mahito. and this mysterious world is specifically the gateway to it is located in this spooky looking tower right. which also doesn't look like anything that out was of built tra- by his grand uncle right? right and doesn't look like anything out of traditional japanese like architecture it oh, looks yeah. very european it's like you have this contrast where i mean it's tricky because Natsuko so Mahito's adopted mother right Natsuko's yeah house is very traditional except right. you have this very western style 
kind of house lit that exists on the side where Mahito actually lives. So you do have like these. And, and Mahito's together, room right? also looks like straight up, like almost like an Amer- like American boy's oh, sure. room. Because you know it's I mean? inside of this, in- it's inside of this building that's within the enclosure. Yeah. Um, so you, you do have like uh, Western culture, Japanese culture. Like, I mean, I, I say Western, but like probably like British or American culture. I yeah. Guess, existing yeah. alongside I mean, Japanese culture. I think German and American culture were the two like biggest influencers on that oh, era sure. of. of the modernizing imp- impact yeah. on Japan at that so time. So eventually, um, Mahito is inspired to make a bow and arrow because of like, the fact that Natsuko saved him with one from the heron when the heron was about to abduct him. However, Natsuko herself isn't abducted after she right. gets sick with the baby. And I don't know if she's abducted. She leaves. She walks her, into of the her woods, own volition. Yeah, and we don't know if she was compelled or if she sort of chose on her own. Which is arguably one of the biggest sort of plot, like, huh? Moments. Yeah, it's like, there why are, there does are she many go? moments it's not like clear. this throughout the movie that are a little yeah. tricky. But so Mahito eventually ends up going to the tower, like the heron's been telling him to. He meets with the heron. Uh, his sort of nurse, in a way, Kiriko, is also there. And the three of them go on a journey that eventually takes them to this other world, like this land of the dead, right? Which is a real place because we see it open up into the real world it's not necessarily like this isn't the wizard of oz or something where the whole thing is mahito's dream it's like a metaphorical space that exists and has actual influence but you know you want to hear another connective thing that was written on a on a door like archway in just a moment well Um, this is relevant to this passage okay go on because it's like this exact moment that this occurs yeah Uh, hold that thought real quick adam okay which is so on on that passageway that he goes through is written Facemi la divina uh, patestate. Oh, oh, I think yeah. is what it says, and that is from Dante's Divine Comedy. Oh yeah, well that's that's uh, not surprising. It's literally, uh, I think, um, yeah, it says it's I forget it's yeah, the inscription at the gates of hell. Great, yeah, and it literally that bit translates to I was wrought by divine power. Yeah. So that's what it actually translates that to. That makes sense, especially but yeah. considering where this movie goes. <laughs> it is literally the gateway to hell. It's true. So Mahito goes to hell along with Kiriko and the heron. He has many strange adventures that include pelicans and parakeets and a girl named I love the parakeets. Uh, Himi yep. who has fire powers and is also somehow his mom displaced in time. Timey wimey shit. The trick well, he that, also runs into his his, his nursemaid lady. Yes. Yeah. Who I it's implied I guess is his nursemaid from the past who right. came with Hime to this. Not necessarily. I, I okay, thought about okay. that. Not necessarily. Again, yeah. this is how confusing this movie is. Nothing right. is explicitly stated when it comes to this stuff. She either was already there from an from another point. Mm. Um. She just opts to go back with Hemi, but it's not necessarily stated that sh- they went there together. They might have, but I didn't, I, yeah. I th- that's ambiguous to right. me. But so a lot of this stuff happens. And then Mahito goes home to his family. Instead of like taking control of this realm, it ends with him leaving his room to go meet up with his family and his mother's new young child. And that's the end of the movie. Just wanted to have it all out there. Now this, There's a lot of other stuff there, too. Now, everything that Adam just said may have also just been a fever dream, dream because this kid literally bashes his head in with a rock That's after right. he gets bullied by some kids. I don't know if I buy it's a fever dream because... And this is... You know, this is actually something... I don't know if I... Maybe I want to change the film in this way. There is... So, there is a scene that almost kind of cuts away from the spirit world stuff and just shows... 
the father having that's things true. explained yeah, to him. Yeah. Where they're like, oh, did you know this tower was built around a falling like space rock? And people have like also Mahito's mother may have been sucked in there once upon a time. And then there's a scene where the father like, literally tries to stage an attack on the tower and he gets attacked by all these large pelicans, by all these parakeets, parakeets. that fly out, right? Yeah. It felt a little too literal to me. It sort of felt like someone behind the scenes was saying, uh, Miyazaki, they're really not going to get it if we don't tell them exactly what's happening. <laughs> like, this is actually like, happening. Please give the audience a rope so yeah. they know what they're dealing with. And right? that, and there, this also yields to the, the great line of, like, my son is a budgie. It's true. <laughs> Which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> the, the, the parakeets in this movie are very funny, even though they're, they're pretty odd. So I, I did want to talk a bit about the start of this movie, because I feel like before we spend a lot of time talking about the end, yeah, yeah. there's a lot going on at the end. I really want to talk about. So, what were your thoughts about the first scene with the fire? Oh, the fire is fantastic. Yeah, like the way it distorts reality and That's there's right. this very otherworldly feel to it. Um, I mean, that that was one of my first initial thoughts. I it was literally the first note that I have in here. Uh, I'm maybe not the first, but it's like way up there. So, mm-hmm. um, it left a huge impression on me. Um, yeah, I mean, the very first shot of this film is like a air siren right going whirr mm-hmm. it kind of sets the tone like oh no this isn't just gonna be yeah a happy-go-lucky film well it we also wartime right it also sets it in that sense very much in dialogue with the again historical setting of the wind rises oh, yeah, for in sure. the same sort of way that it's i feel like something like spirit of the way exists here's like this kind of nebulous present that interacts right, with right. the spirit world and the wind rises gives you a specific time kind of saying yeah. okay like it doesn't tell you what date this is happening but it does say okay this is taking place around world war ii there's the bombing right, right. character loses his mom right didn't they say it's like 1941 or am i and, making that maybe the case no I, I that's when remember. he was that's when miyazaki was born never mind okay. i'm just yeah. making that that up maybe um, um the the animation that that scene where he's running through the birding town right and yeah. like everyone's sort of faces are being warped and distorted it's a very specific animator, Shinya Ohira, who did that scene, um, who's someone who's worked in a lot of past Miyazaki stuff. He has an extremely distinctive style that just doesn't look like much else. There are a couple other right. animators who are sort of playing a similar game, but he's, he's very recognizable. I will say, that as I was watching that sequence, I was like, man, there are going to be people who are going to pull frames out of this and be like, oh man, Miyazaki films are so oh, sure. animated as well as they were in the past. Look at yeah. the, what is this warb- what warbly person thing? It's like, but yeah. that's the point. <laughs> I mean, it's the kind of thing where, uh, yeah, if you look at specific frames of it, you say, what is he doing? But if you look at the whole thing in motion, it makes perfect sense. It looks beautiful. Yeah. It's, it's capturing the specific mood, right? Like yeah, it's sort of yeah. breaking down reality to show or making it more real in some ways. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, because it's the it's the ways in which reality loses cohesion when you're panicking, when you're, you're afraid, when I mean, it's it's yeah, I mean, it's just a nightmare sequence. And I think it does a really good job. of. Yeah, it's also unlike anything we've seen in, I think, any other Miyazaki yes. films. And I think this so, this is one of the scenes in the movie that to me sums up a lot of what makes The Boy and the Heron really interesting. Right. Part of it is, okay, um, so I mentioned that interview with Inoue recently, right? And Inoue, I believe, says that Miyazaki drew the storyboard for this scene, like, potentially intending for Ohiro to draw them. Mm. So I've seen some folks in reaction to this movie say, oh, the early scene's totally different from regular Miyazaki stuff. What's going on? Why are we experimenting? Well, the backgrounds also oh, really sure. stand out in this movie as having a more sort of impressionistic style yeah then like, i feel like you're more defined more concrete in, in the earlier right. studio ghibli miyazaki films 
And in this one, there's this really like even more painterly sense to them. If yeah. That makes sense. So this is a great contradiction in this film, right? Which is on the one hand, Miyazaki was the person who said, all right, I want Ohira to draw this. I mean, as far as I know, uh, Miyazaki was a person who sort of drew the scene for Ohira to come in and put his personal style on it. However, I think this scene does also look distinct, even compared to Ohira's other collaborations in Miyazaki and his movies. And you can say that about a lot of other scenes in this film as well. I feel like The Boy and the Heron is a movie that it has scenes that show more of an other Miyazaki stuff. Do you feel that way when you're watching it? Um, do you mean from a, from an animation standpoint? Just in terms or of you're watching something wise. and you say, I mean, you're, you're already kind of talking about plot in terms of just things happening right. and not really being able to draw connections. But in terms of animation, too, like were there scenes so, that sort of stood out to you as different from past Miyazaki work? Well, I already mentioned the the backgrounds. I feel yeah. like there there is less cohesion between the backgrounds and the animation mm-hmm. in this than there used there was in prior works. Like sometimes it feels like they're just so distinctly different that it. it I definitely got the sense sometimes more keenly that this is animation on on top of this very almost right. stylistically different background. Like it, you're saying it look, like it looks a bit fake, maybe? I don't know about fake, but just like you can feel the separation of those two layers oh, more, more keenly than I could in other movies. Um, and that's just because the, the, the backgrounds, like, I'm not saying they're badly drawn. They're very well drawn. They're very mm. detailed. But stylistically, they feel at odds with what is happening in terms of the animation. Um, and I don't, again, but, but here's the thing. I don't feel that that is unintentional. I don't yes. feel that that actually works against the movie. I think that's right. Um, I would also say the same thing from a plot standpoint. To, to be clear, we both, you know, I think we both expressed the sort of notion that like there are things that are just not explained. But I don't necessarily think that those detract from what the movie's trying to do necessarily. Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest and also say, even if they are problems, even if the reason they're right. in the movie is that Miyazaki or like whoever was working on it didn't know how to make sense of them, I don't necessarily think they make the movie worse. And also didn't know how to make this movie any less long because it is already a two hour long movie like how much more could you add on to it yeah so i should say the reason i've been hitting this point so hard is because in a way the boy and the heron is pretty different from a lot of past miyazaki films and part of that comes down in the way it was made so that i mentioned that interview of toshiyuki in a way in full frontal right and one of the things he says in it uh so in a way as someone who had previously worked with Miyazaki on Kiki's delivery service, which is another famous one, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, and that's he, another good one. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. So he talks about how uh, Miyazaki was really rough to him in that movie, how he was just constantly talking about like, oh, you're so in a way as someone, and this is also from this interview, in a way talks about how he came to Kiki's delivery service from Acura, which was all about realism, about creating this world in which things work like they're supposed to do in reality, right? in some ways right and Miyazaki immediately starts saying what are you doing like you don't know what you're drawing you can't draw boats you can't draw people you can't draw anything like why are you wasting you can't draw European architecture are you an idiot what are you doing right <laughs> so in a way he says, all right I'm not a good fit for Miyazaki Miyazaki like he, he uses a line something like hang on just a moment he uses a line like it's gonna take a little while to pull this bit of quote but basically he talks about how oh here we go Yeah, Miyazaki doesn't look for anatomical truth. Rather, he wants to express emotions and feelings as directly as possible. Now, if you're interested in reading more about this, Kevin Sirigita on Sakuga Blog wrote a piece about this as well. He sort of writes about how 
Miyazaki's films, even though the characters move and emote in very expressive ways that are much more elaborate than you typically see in anime films and TV. Um, the physics in his stories aren't necessarily true to life physics. Oh yeah. It's like the characters move and express themselves in ways that are more direct than the ways that things actually happen in real life. You know, it's, it's... And so one of the things that Sirigeta talks about in this piece he wrote is how the boy in the heron is different. That you see more of like the realist school leaking into it. Like suddenly mm. the characters are, you see them like kind of struggle to carry things around. There's more of the sense of time passing or like just things falling in ways that feel like they're more affected by gravity. You know, it's, it's funny because one of my first sort of like head tilt, like, huh, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, reactions that I had to the movie was when, um, so right after they arrive in the, the sort of countryside town, like mm. they, they get off the train and there's no that... music at all. Right. To some, it's, it, oh, there's a lot even, of silence. You're right though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's somber, you know, and it, it does feel like a bit of a, anyways, not nothing, nothing yet sidetracked, but, yep. um, that, that little like bike and carrier, I forget what it's called. Like the little coat, not coach, um, the back thing in the bike. Yeah, yeah. Like pulls up. And when they like load up into it, like Mahito and his his um, I don't know aunt slash Natsuko. slash soon to be mother Natsuko, yeah. when they load up into it, like the way it creaks and like kind of falls down under the weight of the passengers, like mm. I think that speaks to what you're describing. There's this very sort of realistic, like like you hear the suspensions and like it all, yeah, it has this sort of burden of rea- yeah. realism there, to it. There's a reason for that because. One of the things that Inoue says in this interview that has been quoted by a lot of people, like this even made its way, there's a podcast I like listening to called Blank Check, which mm-hmm. talks about, like kind of goes through a film, through a director's filmography, film by film. They talked about The Boy and the Heron, and even they brought this up, even though they're like several degrees removed from the yeah. anime scene, right? But so Inoue says in this interview, oh yeah, when I came back to Boy and the Heron, one of the things I realized is that Miyazaki of now is very different from Miyazaki in the days of Kiki's delivery service. Oh, he 100%. Can't, yeah. He can't draw as fast as he can anymore. He's a lot more tired. It used to be that Miyazaki was someone who would take everyone's work at the end of the project and redraw a big oh chunk of it God. himself just to make it all fit together. And that was one reason why he was a nightmare to work for because often he'd just redo your work because it didn't, he'd like p- right. put in such elaborate corrections that if it just effectively became his in that way unless you were so good that he trusted you just do your stuff like i think probably like a shinya ohira was talented enough for him to mostly leave you alone but when it came to other folks he just which is why and i think this may have been the case for the wind rises as well but there's cg in this movie oh yeah i mean there's been cg in his films since at least princess mononoke that's true that is true but it's also it's wild to me that he's allowed for that because I don't know I mean, if he, he can control that. <laughs> he said of certain things, ah, this is an insult to life itself, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Which is, right, haha, uh, hypocrite. No, um, you're not wrong. But um, should what was I gonna say? Okay, yeah. One of the thoughts, but it's it's interesting that for you to know this because one of the thoughts that I had, um, as I was watching The Wind Rises, right. if anything, because The Wind Rises is so feet firmly planted in the real world, right? Is that even there, Miyazaki finds a dreamscape in which he can bend the rules of reality and to have people walking on airplanes and like pushing on like literally the walls of the airplane in a way that makes it look cartoonish and comical because yeah. 
be that as it may, I think Miyazaki is someone who fundamentally understands that animation lets you do things that film, for instance, cannot. He insists so, on it constantly. Right, exactly. While other people just let it be. Miyazaki right. is always like, no, animation has to move. It's not right. enough for it to just exactly stay still. It's not a picture drama. Right. right. Uh, I mean, and you get some sequences with the parrots, or sorry, parrots, parakeets yeah. specifically, that are freaking like Looney Tunes. Like there's the oh, one holding sure. the knife and like being like, I'm going to get you. Yeah. And it's like, this is like cartoonish, like in the Looney Tunes way. And it's great. And you can also say in a way, how does this fit with the rest of the movie? I'm right. <laughs> like this is a movie that has like all these realistic scenes in the beginning. But it's also wild for me. So actually yeah. that's another way in which this differs because right. there were references in animation to Looney Tunes and maybe even early Disney stuff in the way that you have like the bulging eyes and the mm. knives and like, which I, you don't necessarily have, we haven't seen in Miyazaki's work, I think, up until this point. I Not, think in a way, like, you look at something like Castle in the Sky, there's the scenes where the characters are doing, like, a muscle true. off where they burst their Oh, that's a good point. Okay, off. okay. Yeah. But it's been a minute. <laughs> Perhaps. I mean, I guess what I'm trying to, be, what I'm trying to get at is that you, you brought up how you have these scenes that feel like they have their own personality, right? Right. And it is because, like, uh, in a way he says in this interview with Full Frontal, that Miyazaki just didn't have the time or the energy to mm. do as much work. I see where you're going with this. Right, right. Yeah. Now, Toshio Suzuki, the longtime producer of Miyazaki, sort of had said, oh, Miyazaki mostly just did the storyboards and let the other people work off of it. However, right. that's not what Inoue says. What Inoue says is Miyazaki probably did was pretty involved in the animation of at least the first part of the film. But in the second part, that's when he sort of started mm. losing his energy a bit and that's when other folks started coming in like Takeshi Honda who is I believe the film's animation director but that could explain some of the stuff that I'm referencing you know with the parakeets and stuff yeah to to be honest but anyways oh yeah yeah. I think they were like particular and this is a film that has a relatively small staff I think considering how long it took to make and how expensive it is you know it's it's funny though because I think the end of the movie is stronger in some ways yeah like in the, the second half in the spirit world yeah i mean yeah yeah there's there are a lot of interesting scenes there i mean definitely some of my favorite scenes in the whole movie are in the second half of the film right yeah. I mean, um, i'm not necessarily saying that other not, folks having more of a voice than miyazaki is a bad thing it just right i think gives it a different flavor it, it's less no, i i i agree i yeah. i understand what you're saying and, and i if, did yeah if, if the movie is like uh sierra says in the sakuga blog piece about physics and miyazaki films right if um the realist school of animation feels like it has more influence on the boy mm-hmm. and the heron. It sort of fits with the story, right? Because it is one that feels right. like it has one foot in the historical fiction of The Wind Rises, which is more grounded in individual people's stories. But it has another foot in this more fantastical Miyazaki storytelling. Right. And it's able to integrate them in a way where it doesn't integrate cleanly, but it has some of the strengths of both approaches in there. But it also works because I think there's inherently a tension between those two things in the movie as well. Oh, yeah. So. And it is a movie about that tension in a way, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also, fundamentally, again, we're, we're deep into spoilers now, but Mojito doesn't choose to exist in a fantasy. He yeah. doesn't choose to keep building and improving on the fantasy, which, you know, the, the whatever power fantasy it may be, or maybe a commentary on fascism or imperialism, he chooses to exist in the real world and to 
fix it through the power of friendship. I mean, it is a very classic <laughs> fantasy story in that way, right? Because yeah. like there have been tons of stories like this. I mean, you probably grew up reading them, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The stuff about ah, oh, he went to the other world and he had an right. adventure there, and then he came back. Well, it, in fact, I've actually been rewatching uh, Owl Owl House. Oh yeah, which is a fantastic Haven't show. Seen it, but and I've also really does good. a good job of kind of make, have, having some meaningful commentary on that oeuvre of like off we're off to the fantasy world, but then. Then what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, do you go back? Like, do you come back changed by your experience? Do you stay in the fantasy world? Like, that's another, you know. Yeah, it's uh, tempting. Thought. I mean, in a uh, way, it's like, um, you know, the Mahito's granduncle, right? right? When he offers him the chance to make this, remake this world in a way that actually works, the offer is genuine, right? Oh, absolutely. Like, I think he sincerely believes, oh, yeah, I yeah. cannot save this disaster. But Mahito maybe can save this disaster. And maybe Mahito sort of says, well, I'm not like this pure, untainted child. I've been affected I'm gonna by the world, I'm going to fuck it too. up, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, you know, also, if he was just to say, why should I have to, like, carry your past right. failure? Right? He's also right. Like, why why should Mahito have to do that? Right. Yeah. Well, in a sense, he's also living up to that same, I guess, message that i mentioned earlier not to copy someone else's work yeah no definitely. he will learn from someone else's work and do his own right so i think if again if there is a thesis to this i think it, it is that i do I legitimately believe that um i will say one other thing on the notion of of going to other worlds you know what i got a big you know sort of sense of from this movie even though i've never read the books mm-hmm. narnia yeah i think that's definitely a reference um, i mean there are a lot of Watching this film, there's definitely a lot of fantasy stuff that's in dialogue with it. To the point, I actually went and after watching The Boy and the Heron, read through this book, The Children's Fantasy Literature and Introduction, Mm -hmm. which is an academic book by Farah Mendelssohn and Michael M. Levy that's sort of talking about the history of children's fantasy running from Aesop's fables, which were not initially children's stories, but sort of were adopted as children's stories over time. Been running through... um, Narnia, Lord of the Rings, and of course the Harry Potter novels later, and how things changed over time. Well, and that's also a good question. Who's this movie for? Is this a movie uh, for children? I you know? think <laughs> it can be. True, I would agree with that, I but mean, I don't think it's exclusively that this either. This is a tension that's always sort of existed in children's literature, right? Exactly. Which that's, is a yep. sense, there didn't used to be children's literature, it's more like children's literature is a kind of marketing thing. People eventually realize, oh, yeah, kids read books, too. Yeah. And one of the things this uh, book about the history of children's literature pointed out is, like, back in the day, people asked themselves, what does children's literature look like? They said, well, I guess it's just a book of advice for how children should <laughs> behave, almost right. like a how-do-you-live kind Which of is- book. Hey, we named, right. we kind, did you mean the, to do the name drop? Yes, I did. Okay, perfect. <laughs> Which, and to be fair, how do, you, how do You Live, the book that Hayao Miyazaki apparently loves, is not necessarily an instructional book. From what I've heard, it's like a sort of literary fiction children's book about a kid receiving advice from his family member. Um, there isn't any like fantastical stuff in it like there is in right. Miyazaki's film. And also for the non-wiki heads like us, that's also the name of the film, The Boy and the Heron in Japanese. Yeah, right? How Do You Live? Um, he, they did change it for the English release for some reason. I'm and he sure reads the why. book in the film. You caught that? Yeah, right? he does. He, yeah, does. he that does. That is his exact book. Yeah, it's sort of left to him by. Or he fa- he finds it in Natsuko's house, right? And he's reading yes. through it and saying, "Ah, yes, I see." And then late, at the end of the movie, I feel like he sort of comes back to it's it. It's left by his mother, though. Like she specifically says, oh, right, to, right. like you know, yes. to to because I'm guessing that's when she learned that she was pregnant with him. 
Um, yeah, and perhaps. then he's, you know, reading it, out, you know, obviously after she's passed. So, so there's this generational sense, right? Like the yeah. parents pass it on to their kids and he sort of has to live with like this burden that's been given to him after this terrible thing happened. Right. Right. And it's also the critically, it's the book that he reads while his aunt slash future mother, it's complicated, um, leave like basically uh, goes into the forest and he sees her as she's doing that. And mm. then he sits down and reads this book. And then as he finishes reading it, you know, he hears the calls of people searching for her and he himself engages in the search. Yeah. So that, the timing of that feels weirdly meaningful somehow. Before we get to talking about one of the favorite scenes in the movie, I really wanted to say, since he brought up Chronicles of Narnia, right? Right. So that's a major flashpoint in this book I read. Do you know why that might be? So I've never actually read the Chronicles of oh, Narnia. Oh, really? So I, 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 well, okay, that's not that's not entirely true. I may have read parts of the first book as a child, but like I've never comprehensively read any of this as so an So you haven't seen the movies even? I've seen bits and pieces. Again, I'm, I'm aware of the Chronicles of Narnia, but right. I am not well-versed in it, if that makes sense. So one of the big differences in Chronicles of Narnia that set it apart from all of the earlier stuff it solidified this trend in children's literature of children having responsibility for the fate of the mm. world in a way. Right. Like a lot of early children's literature, at least in places like Britain or the U.S., were stuff like, oh, uh, this kid has to find an object in their house. Or, oh, this kid gets three wishes or something. But it all takes place within the home. It's like, oh, it's within their house. It's within the garden. They're wandering the area just outside. It's never about right. them going on epic quests, or, and it's never about them having a direct effect on the world around them. But this book argues World War II happens. People start dropping bombs in places like Britain, and suddenly there's a sense that, uh, oh, wait a second. Actually, kids are do have a responsibility to the world right. in that way. And you right. start seeing more stories for them that start saying, well, if these 10-year-olds don't come together and save the world, we could all be in a lot of trouble, right? And, and you know, we're right back to World War II. Yeah, exactly. That's, <laughs> that's just right. Miyazaki has read all the classics. Right. So I don't know what he thinks about Chronicles of Narnia. I, I figure he probably loves Earthsea, because there's definitely stuff in this oh, movie with yeah. the imagery that is very uh, Ursula K. Le Guin-esque. I feel like there, the politics, they have there's some... Tales of Earthsea all throughout Studio Ghibli stuff, but I mean they, they have a film about Earthsea. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> it's famously like their great true. disaster, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, it's true. Um, I mean, another part of it is just this idea that C.S. Lewis, who writes the Narnia novel, says, "Okay, um, we want to be able to instruct children on how to be good people, but if we can use fantasy to teach them how to be good Christians, then uh -huh. why not do it?" And that's another part of it. That is true. But yeah. I wasn't going to bring that up. <laughs> oh, no, for sure. But it's true. I mean, that's a good point. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of, well, I think there's a useful comment to be made there about how there are certain things that are sort of the foil of every single one of these works. And I think that is applicable to Miyazaki as well, because I think he, his own nostalgia, I think, blinds him some to some of the context and subtext that he he puts in his own works. I mean, I might even go beyond nostalgia to say that, I mean, I don't know Miyazaki, never spoken to him, so I can't say this for sure. I would say it's interesting that Miyazaki's past couple of films have been so obsessively self-referential. Right, right, exactly. I've seen yeah. people say, um, oh, Mahito's Miyazaki, the his granduncle's- Slightly Isao, older, his like grand, the timeline is his a little His granduncle's like Isao Takahata, 
the heron is his producer toshio suzuki that i mean i would say the parakeets to me they have that fascist vibe to them but to right. me it's just like oh the, this is what miyazaki kind of thinks of his viewership just, that's possible or, i mean of, i could see like that a, yeah producers behind the scenes like the businessmen people right. saying uh this is what a film is supposed to look like but then when they try to build the tower well, themselves they can't right i mean you could also make the argument that i mean I, I think from the standpoint of of the parakeets actually being his viewership that makes perfect sense because if this is a movie about like his audience wants him to pass on his crown to his son and for there to be studio ghibli into perpetuity and he's saying no screw that this ends with me yeah. um or to be if you want to be more charitable to charitable to him you could say that it's him passing on the message to his grandchildren saying right. don't feel like you have to lift up the clown the crown yeah. it's not worth it do your own thing right which yeah. is kind of gracious on his part like he's not saying you need to be the next miyazaki or the world will end it's him saying just figure yourself out and that's the most important thing right which is nice now all of this is to say that's one take on the movie. That's right. That's one take. It can't because be the only one. Another is could be well that this is also again an allegory for Japan rebuilding itself post war and having to find a way to find new meaning for itself post war. It could also literally be I think his, he also lost his mother as he, a child. Yes. So although she I don't believe she died as abruptly. I think he had her for a longer time. But okay. she did get sick, and that was something yeah. that bothered him a lot. When and, he was and that's there in uh, My Neighbor Totoro as well. Yeah, uh, the, absolutely. The, the sickly mother. So like that, that's another recurring theme. But again, Miyazaki so, and mothers. It's true. It's there, right. Um, so there's multiple readings, again, for this movie. But, but that also, I think, makes it different from earlier Miyazaki films because mm -hmm. there is just more readings of this movie and it's not as clear cut in what is the canonical reading, which I think has, and I know that they're the friends of ours who have seen this movie, who walked away from it feeling unsatisfied yes. because they didn't have a cohesive sense of what that reading was or even how they should enjoy the fantasy. And I think they also maybe they saw the, you know, that dream world and they were left cold by it yes. because it was like so empty. And I was like, they exactly. wanted, they wanted that flight of fantasy and it wasn't there. And, and I don't, that wasn't the point necessarily. And I don't blame them for opinion. it either, but right. I think, I think it's actually perfectly valid to say that this movie's a little out of focus. Yeah. Because it does, I mean, you can say maybe when um, Miyazaki was making this movie, he just didn't want to stifle it. So he just put stuff down without quite knowing how it was all going to fit together. You could say that he and the rest of his crew were still trying to figure it out while they were making it. Like, I think, um, I mean, folks have said that Miyazaki sort of makes his movie storyboard first in chronological order. With a lot of his past films too, there's also I mean, even Spirited Away, uh, there are points where it sort of ebbs and flows. It's not he doesn't make carefully constructed puzzle boxes where everything perfectly fits together. They they sort of go on and mostly sort of fit together while you're watching it, but sometimes later you're like, wait, what? Why did Chihiro go to like Yubaba's sister's house for a whole section of this film? And then but come back, and then she goes home. And somehow that, that's, that's not a easier to believe. Than some of the, I think the the leaps that you have to do in Boy and the Heron, though. So and, yes. I, and that's where it kind of breaks the camel's back a little bit, right? I mean, one of the big scenes for me, and so okay, I'll put my cards on the table. All right, maybe my favorite scene in the movie it's the scene with uh, Mahito and Natsuko mm -hmm. in the birthing chamber, surrounded by paper. Right. What do you think was happening in that scene? Because <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and that's another great example. So I have an interpretation okay but in order for me to come up with this interpretation i have to assume what someone's interior thoughts are 
And these we never get to see that interiority yeah. of Natsuko's in the movie. So you don't think so? I have to make so let's back up. Okay. I think we get to that sequence from the interaction between Natsuko and Mahito in her room when she's blaming herself for him having hurt himself. Yes. Uh, she, or having been sick, hurt. I think, right? Because she's had a baby she, and she's lying down on her bed. No, no, she hasn't had the baby yet. She's oh, still okay. pregnant. She's just had morning sickness. Okay, that's so it. So that's all it is. And they they do mention that you know fam, uh, the, the 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 women in that family have had a, have a hard time bearing children. Yes. So they they just they're kind of sickly during that time frame. Um, and it's also mentioned that Mahito's mother also had a similar sort of hard time carrying him. Yeah. Um, when she was pregnant with him, but I think it's at that point it's it's sort of mentioned to us that. She's feeling the, the, a sense of guilt for yeah. for that and wants to protect him. So, and she also already knows, right, that Mahito still doesn't get, totally accept her, right, in a way. Perci- exactly right, and that's another because he himself is not open to her. That's exactly right, yes. Adam. In that sequence, so I think those feelings of like the complexity of will he accept me as a mother? Am I fit to be a mother? Mm. Is what leads to her choosing to go to the tower and into the other world. Now, whether this is for the purposes of offering herself up as a successor, of offering up her child as a successor, is not clear. But what I am willing to posit is that she says she hates him because she's trying to push him away to protect him mm. in that sequence. She doesn't necessarily mean that. Yeah. But she it, says this in the birthing chamber, right? Right. Well, this round of my paper, which again feels like a callback to Spirited Away. It yeah. could be that there's another film that this is also referencing, but just I think of the sort of little paper birds chasing after Haku in dragon form, right? In right. that movie. But this is all me like theorizing. I'm yeah. connecting the puzzle pieces and I'm pretty sure that's what it means. But I couldn't tell you, like I couldn't tell you why she chose to go into the into the tower and to go to this world. I couldn't tell you why she necessarily tries to push him away. Um, like heck, did she know her sister was there? It's it's firmly yeah. established that that like people lose their memory after a while. So her sister would also have lost her memory of that right. experience unless you kept a souvenir, which Mahito does at the end of the story. That's a different bit because he actually does retain a a, a bit of the world building clay for himself right although we don't know how long he's going to retain those memories or if he even should retain those memories right yeah but the heron is like well we'll see yeah no it's true now okay you remember how i brought up a guy named takeshi honda earlier right was the animation director for this film yes so guess who was responsible for natsuko's character design in this movie oh now there's a specific reason for this so that in that in a way interview i keep bringing up he said that 90% 90% of the character designs in the film were true to Miyazaki's original designs. That Miyazaki drew the characters but, and Honda was some, just sort of retraced them and said, I'll read these ones. However, for Natsuko, Honda revised them significantly. Interesting, because she does not feel yeah. like a Miyazaki type, if you will. And it's funny, in a way, it sort of says in this interview, so, you know, dirty secret, Miyazaki is not good at drawing older women, right? <laughs> <laughs> like he says, when when he tries it, it doesn't really work. So Honda comes at it from his angle. He sort of says, okay, anytime Natsuko appears, I'm just going to redraw this sequence in the movie. Interesting. And then he, he draws it again and again throughout the film. And so I think for me, there's this added charge during this scene with Mahito and Natsuko. But that is a good point. I think Miyazaki has two stages. He has young girl and old baba. It's true. And that's it. And he's very good at drawing both of those. Yeah. But you don't <laughs> always see folks who are sort of in the middle. Yeah. yeah. 
But so according to Inoue, this whole scene in the birthing chamber is kind of Honda's scene. Like maybe other folks who contributed to it as well. But it's something that Honda like sort of conceptualized and thought this is going to happen here. Right. Yeah. And so I think a lot of the complicated emotions there, like the fact that you just Natsuko has such a strong, angry expression on her face that I think is really effective, but also sort of feels mm. like, oh, was this set up earlier? Where is this coming from? Has she been repressing this this entire time? Is right. like this spirit world influencing her to behave in this way? Is this not the real Natsuko? And Mahito is <sighs> yeah. sort of imagining his worst fears. I think in a way, the literal truth of it doesn't, doesn't necessarily matter. It is about getting at this deeper fear, right? Correct. Because it is a world of illusions and of psychology, not a world... Uh, well, literal fantasy. and it's also established multiple times in that very world that there are moments where things happen, but they were dreamlike. So, yeah, is it all dreamlike to some extent? That's yeah. unclear. I mean, it can't. I mean, again, it can't totally be a dream because we see it sort of invade the real world in some scenes. Well, unless all of it is a dream, including the parts where it unless it's the all animation, world. of course, it's well, all fake. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but but I think to me the reason that scene is so strong is because. It's sort of the two parts of this film, right? On one hand, you ask yourself, does it make sense? Does it fit? Is it consistent? You don't really know. But this is a, a movie about things being strange and inconsistent right. and not really working. About like a kid who's in, at that point in his life when things don't make sense. And so it's also all about this... worlds ending and worlds beginning. And oh, I yeah. think there's an ink that's incoherent by its definition. Things dying is it's things losing their thread. So, I mean, thematic again, whether this is a happy accident yeah, <laughs> or, or not, it works. I, it can be both at the same time. Also true. Maybe. Yeah. And not everyone likes this movie either. So for that's them, it could true. be an unhappy accident. Right. Well, I think a lot of people don't like this movie because people have a very specific idea of what they expect out of Miyazaki. Oh yeah. And I don't know that this movie plays to that in the way that people wanted to. So, that, I mean, it, this got, this gets back to what we were talking about with Miyazaki at the very beginning in terms of who is Hayao Miyazaki, right? Yeah. Like you can look at his movies and say, Oh, actually, here's a question I'm going to ask you, Alex. Have sure. you ever read Zen pencils? No. Do you know what Zen pencils is? I do not. There is a comic called Zen pencils. That is a web comic was fairly popular several, like even a decade or two ago. Zen Pencils is the kind of comic that, like, picks some random aphorism, like, uh, don't worry if people don't understand you, you're a genius, or something. <laughs> okay. And kind of has a whole comic about that, right? So there is a long series of Zen Pencils sketches, or, like, strips, that are pretty infamous. It's all about, like, a giant evil troll who ruins some artist's life because he's mean and he's saying critical things about their work. And then, who should mobilize a worldwide task force to defeat the evil of criticism but the most creative man of all time, Hayao Miyazaki, piloting a giant <laughs> robot <laughs> oh God. to blow up the troll uh, into like a giant blast of slime, right? This is, I feel like, the way that people see Hayao Miyazaki. It's like one layer of it. Like the guy who's right. the master artist who's so kindly... And believes in the power of creativity. So another phrase I heard is that 
for someone who is known as a master world builder, yeah, th- the lack of depth in that world was a disappointment, or the lack of even elaboration. Like there are things that just happen and are not explained, right? And because he's perceived of as a master world builder, that was a disappointment. Yeah, because Spirited Away is a movie that has yeah. that sense, or even My Neighbor Totoro, yeah. like that takes place in quote unquote the real House world, Moving but Castle. It, but I it mean, feels so immaculately yeah. realized, right? Yeah. But I mean, and there's something to that. Like, there's a great... So I know you haven't seen um, Future Boy Conan, and I haven't seen it either. I've only seen, I think, six or seven episodes of it. There's a great piece about it on this blog, Let's Anime, where what the guy talks about in that piece is you watch Future Boy Conan, you see how meticulous Miyazaki is about the characters, like, visibly crossing through spaces, taking their shoes off and on, building things out of materials in the environment. And that's still here. I mean, the sequence of him building exactly. the, 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 the arrow, not yeah. even the, like the bow and arrow bow. That was future boy Conan. You know, that's, that's amazing. True. Or even just in the very beginning of the movie, when you see Mahito, like putting his shoes back on. Oh yeah. yeah. When he leaves his yeah. house, like that's something you'd see in a Miyazaki movie that another right. animated film would just skip over. They would take a shortcut. They'd say, just assume, okay, he has his shoes on. That's just how it is. Yeah. Miyazaki never assumes. He no. says, no. no, this all has to be meticulous. Surrealist. Hell, he even has to go back to see that the stick he was using was, you know, was it really broken? And then it shatters again. Like the, the, the attention to detail in some of those sequences is, is yeah. I mean, really to amazing. be honest, you can even go back before, future boy conan you can go to another project that miyazaki was involved in mm-hmm. which is one of the most famous animated television shows of all time and yet i think not very well known in the u.s which is heidi girl the alps oh, the right. very first world masterpiece or i don't know if it's the first one but the kind of early masterpiece world masterpiece theater series like this series yeah. of animated series that were adapting western children's novels and animation that was a film sorry it was a tv series directed by isao takahata again who's like the other great studio ghibli director but miyazaki played a pretty important role in it i think he actually so heidi do you know what layouts are yes yeah in terms of animation it's like going from storyboard to layout right to um animation right right there's okay halfway in between so i got this from a piece there's a website, Ani, Ani Etudes Online, which is, I think, run in part by Matteo Watsky, who like is associated with this full frontal site that influenced Inoue, or like right. that interviewed Inoue. Um, they talk about how Heidi Girl of the Alps was one of the very first television anime to use layouts, and it wasn't oh. necessarily the first, and it didn't necessarily invent them, but it did have some of the most elaborately detailed layouts in any anime production of that time period. Was it Miyazaki? It is. Okay. Miyazaki did all the layouts. <laughs> the man just is such like, a perfectionist. Just Jesus. like Takahata, who's maybe even more of a perfectionist than Miyazaki, right. directed every single episode of the show by himself. Wow. Yeah. That was a different time. Yeah. And, and you know, there are people who point at Heidi Girl the Alps and say, this is still one of the best TV shows of all time. You look at modern animation, it, like even though Heidi came out, like decades ago right most modern anime cannot hold a candle to heidi in terms of how it looks and that's probably true however i've also seen folks say like both uh matteo watsky mm-hmm. and like i think todette who also writes for any any etudes as well she may have had something to say about this right. as well 
I've seen them say this. I've seen Jonathan Clements also say this in his book about the history of animation production. They both say that Heidi, in a way, also planted the seeds of the industry's destruction. Uh, that it proved, oh, you can have people try to create great-looking animation on a TV budget. Is it feasible long-term? No. Will people kill themselves <laughs> while trying to make this? No. But will it look just good enough that people will continue to think, oh, Heidi Girl of the Alps is a realistic standard on television? Yes. Right. And so that's like the road that was begun by the fact that Astro Boy was like made on such a short schedule and for so little money back in the day. This assumption was made that uh, right. you can have good-looking television animation that runs for like 50 episodes. Yeah, the 50 episodes is still... I, I mean, if there is one good thing to have come out of the current eras, I think that we do have more realistic runtimes. That oh, yeah. said, 12 episodes is frequently too short. But I think where we're kind of ending up with some of the better shows that are allowed to go beyond that, the 25 mark is pretty solid. I mean, I would even say these days, like, a lot of shows made today are lucky if they even make it past six episodes while having to take a break. That's It's really a nightmare true. out there. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, I mean like, anyway. we're watching Witch from Mercury right now yeah. in Anime Club, right? That's a show... Six episodes in, they had to release a recap episode because they that's couldn't true. make it past that. Yeah, um, and that's like the next big Bandai Namco, um, original series. Well, it's wild. You know, I'm glad you brought up Anime Club real yeah. quick because, um, one thought I had while I was watching specifically The Wind Rises, uh, and I do want to bring this up. Um, in those dream sequences, mm. there's a lot of airplanes flying and like the way that the physics and other things interact at points was very reminiscent of keep your hands off Isaacan, or perhaps it's better to say that keep your hands off Isaacan in the way that it dealt with some of the sound effects during the fantasy sequences was reminiscent of the wind rises. I mean, you know, in the very um, first episode of keep your hand off Isaac and oh, what show inspires oh, the main yeah. character. Yeah. Future yeah. boy Conan. Exactly. No, <laughs> so watches. it is not a surprise, but having not seen wind rises yeah. until well, just now I yeah. wasn't able to make that connection. So that's true. And this is one of the great things about coming back to these shows or watching stuff when you're older as you catch. Yeah. These oh, things. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Um, so, I mean, yeah, Miyazaki was already in the DNA of that. But that's another thing. Some of that isn't there in the manga. They A lot of that is added in the anime mm -hmm. for... Masaki Yuasa, the director, plus yeah. a lot of other young folks at Science Sorrow who are working yeah. on it. Yeah, no, it's The anime is very much a different beast in some ways. Yeah. And uh, they're both good, but right. just different. I mean, to try to rope it in, I think, you know, what I was trying to say was all of this, all these digressions yeah. about, like, oh, uh, Miyazaki's past, Heidi Girl, the Alps, all this stuff is that Miyazaki is so much more than just the kindly old grandpa in the corner drawing Yeah, he's a bad images. father, amongst other things. But he's also <laughs> more than the cranky guy who hates right, life right. itself, right? Like, he somehow believes strongly enough in the power right. of animation that he's made well, multiple films now about, like, oh, it's great to make planes. It's great right. to do so. And, and, so. That's a, and the other part of that dichotomy is that he is both someone who is still very beholden to his childhood, to that's right. the, both the trauma and the things that severely influenced and inspired him, but also who I think he is as, you know, someone who believes in, uh, you know, pacifism and sort of a cohabitation with nature, which in a lot of ways industry doesn't allow for. Yeah. So 
but but he is both proud of that industry but also wants to live with nature so like both of those things can be true and i think are true and in yet, him the birds and the birds and the boy and the heron right yeah are beautiful they fly around and yet they shit everywhere they sure do <laughs> and they're constantly they sure eating small cute yeah. animals yeah That's, and also eating each other yeah or other people so like that dual yeah. the duality and maul each things. other and i mean yeah, exactly. the the i think the the beauty and the horror of life is on full display yeah, and I think that's very much, I mean, I think this is, I think, the core of the film, right? Yeah. That Miyazaki has his, has Mahito go to this fantastical world full of wonderful things. But from the very start, when he's in the tower and the heron takes him to someone who looks just like his mom and says, try touching him and see what happens. He touches her. The thing that looks like his mom just melts yep. into a really disgusting looking puddle, right? Of water, yeah, yeah. or something. Of like goo. Yeah. Like that you sort of see at the start, nothing here is real. Right. It's all fake. You can create like these incredibly wondrous things of like rock and water. That's a good point. And yeah. space metal, but none of it means as much as like the wound you gave yourself when you hit yourself with a rock. Yeah. Right. Like that's And the malice you held while yeah, doing like, that. Yeah. What you felt and like what did mahito even like what do you think he felt at that moment why do you think he did it because i've seen other people argue about this too so i think the the facile answer is that he wanted to somehow you know blame those kids for that yeah i don't think that's the case i think in that moment he felt such self-hatred that he wasn't worth like worthy of living and probably just took that and just aimed it right back at himself yeah that could be it it could be Uh, that he wanted an excuse maybe he thought oh if they find out that i'm being bullied then i'll feel bad so i want to make it seem like i i don't think it was even that i think he just he felt so helpless in that moment Mm. you know because that's the whole thing about self-harm like the reason people self-harm is it's a way to exercise control and i think having lost his mother having lost his home having like having been bullied by these these kids that one act of malice was a way for him to exercise any form of control and over his existence and probably coming from this relatively rich family too right like there's this remove and this again i think is like real life miyazaki's feelings when he was younger yeah like coming from a family that had a fair amount of money you know, that's a. I want to say this really quick because okay. one of the things that kind of I maybe I'm just more aw- aware of class mm. and class distinctions than I've ever been in my life because of maybe also where we are as a society. And right. there's a lot to be said for that. But I've never thought much of the ways in which Miyazaki deals with class mm. or rather doesn't. And what I mean by that is there's always kind of an assumed like substrata of servitude that is very accepting of other people being, you know, on top. And that feels like it's never really fully addressed in his works. And it just struck me very much both in the wind rises and and in this, because especially in the wind rises, we're talking about people who are, you know, come from educated, you know, very well off backgrounds. And it's just kind of taken for granted, but yeah, that, that just feels like it's Maybe. there as well. I mean, I think we want to talk about class. Princess Mononoke is really important, right? That is a good point. That is yeah, true. Because yeah. you have, I mean, the, I forget her name, but the woman who's sort of the villain of that movie, but is an admirable person in a lot of ways and is someone who specifically, like, has many people in her service who are sex workers or who are old or injured or disabled in all these different ways and yet she sort of accepts them she's like so long as you do the work we'll take care of them right that's true 
Yeah. I mean, I will admit, I have to go kind of maybe go back to some of those earlier works myself, but it's also possible that I think, and maybe plausible, that uh, Miyazaki has kind of become less aware of some of his own biases. That's as true. I mean, older. he's complicated, right? Because yeah. or I should say, I shouldn't say he's complicated because movies are more than just him. It's that these films are complicated. Yeah. Because oh, they are movies made by leftists, and yet they're made by leftists who worked so hard on these projects that. I mean, I guess maybe, I don't know, maybe the films that Ghibli are made differently. At least, I mean, there's a story, again, taken from this Anime Etudes piece about the making of Heidi Girl, the Alps. This was Takahata's project rather than Miyazaki's project, really. But do you know what they did to poorly behaving animators on Heidi Girl, the Alps? They I don't know that their, I want to know. <laughs> they would take their bad drawings and they'd stick them up on the wall for everyone to see. That's... <sighs> That's not cool. That's a warning. Like, this can happen to you. Like, yeah. this is what we're doing. Yeah. So everyone just felt just compelled at all times to do their best. And this, I guess, I mean, you've heard, I've heard some good stories, about, like when Miyazaki was making My Neighbor Totoro, that it was like a relatively calm production, maybe. But, I mean, there's been enough people who've said, uh, oh, Miyazaki has high standards. He will tell you what he wants and what he doesn't want when you're making movies with him. He will just cause all kinds of problems, right? Right. Yeah. Um, so I think you're I think you're right. It is tricky. Uh, there are ways in which his films definitely have a lot to say in this respect, but also ways in which they're weirdly blinkered, probably. I mean, we all have our blind spots. So yeah, there's, you know, true. it's just that he has such a extensive work, uh, catalog of work. That For instance, can... he keeps making movies about people having sexual tension with their moms. Was that there? I don't know. It's like I don't a, know. a whole thing about... I mean, the thing with Natsuko and, like, all of the tension with the baby and then Himi being like, ah, I'm going to have you in the future, right? I mean, I, I guess I mean, I'm just I saying guess, all of this. But I don't know. I, I didn't see that. I'm just going to say but I didn't I'm see saying that. all this because, like, Nausicaa back in the day was one of these foundational Moe characters. That's true. Right? Like, the pure girl who's extremely, has, like, really large boobs, I guess. Right. Which is something that Miyazaki himself <laughs> insisted on. I mean, I would argue that's a different thing, though. It's not necessarily, like, an edible thing. Yeah. I, mean, I, I guess I'm just, re- I think Miyazaki, he said something like, ah, yes, Nausicaa is, like, the mother of humanity. I, be making, I don't know exactly where mm. that comes from, but I feel like that was in the water when he was drawing that series. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. Um, I think we're, are we wrapping up? Maybe. Uh, how how do we want to wrap this up can we wrap this up like this movie is just spiraling off and off and off in the space right yeah because there's again so many like we, we could go pretty deep on yeah. any of the things that have happened in this movie um let me ask this um where do you think it sits for you in his catalog of work that's an interesting question i wouldn't say it's my favorite of his movies i think the fact like you said that it has these gaps in it these contradictions right that's its strength, but it also holds it back in some ways. I feel like to me, something like Spirited Away, which is so much more fleshed out, or even like a Princess Mononoke, like those are the films I really like. Um, right. Where, where I think the the Boy and the Heron is special to me is that it feels like one of these late period works where the person the people making the film are just done making something that will appeal to mass audiences and just wants to make some weird idiosyncratic thing that means a lot to them 
but they accept it might not mean a lot to anybody else. I think Wind Rises was more so that idiosyncratic thing than this is. I see this more as an amalgamation of Mm. a lot of the ideas and tendencies in his works up until this point, including, I think, The Wind Rises because of its focus on World War II. I think that's definitely Um, in there, too. I mean, there's even a scene, the scene with the doors, right? Yeah, yeah. Where there's this whole hall of doors and you open each one. I mean, that kind of lends itself to like, ah, yes, all Ghibli movies are connected, right? Yeah. You, you could, could say you could you could open the door there. Yeah. I mean, you know, the folks at well, AO9. Also, Howl's Moving Castle had a fair bit of doors in oh, it yeah. too, you know? So. I mean, probably the folks at IO9 went up at the old days saying every Miyazaki movie is connected like because yeah. of yeah. The Boy in the Hair. Oh, right? you know someone's going to make that yeah. article. <laughs> and to be fair, I'll be honest. I don't necessarily care for that. I sort of like that each of these films is this weird self-contained thing. And I think trying to tie them all together in that way to me feels cheap. Like the Marvelification of Ghibli films is not necessarily something I want. To me, if I was to say, what about the boy in the heron sort of frustrated me? It would be that anytime I saw something on screen that was really explicitly calling back to earlier works, I'd say, all right, like show me something new Miyazaki. Like, you know, you can do it because there's stuff in this film that's very unlike anything you've done. And I'm glad it's in there, but I want to see more of it. Right. So anytime it felt so, too explicitly referential, I kind of wanted them to get back to trying. Interesting I'm going to, I'm going to go back to one of our previous episodes and quote Jake. When okay. We were talking about music. Yes. And how frequently one of your favorite albums of a, of an artist is like the first one that you experienced. Yeah. Because it is when it sounds new and interesting to you. And maybe it's not mm. necessarily the first one I would push back against that, but it's usually in their first, three chronological albums like normally within that time frame you hit on like your favorite yeah i think the same is true of miyazaki because at some point as a creator you start to repeat yourself like you you're only capable of you know this span of expression and you've already hit it so right at some point you start kind of self-referencing and maybe building off of your own work in some way or like referencing your own work and uh, whatever so in that you start to repeat and mm. i think that's what this is i think inevitably this is not going to be anyone's favorite miyazaki film um but it is maybe his most difficult work yeah uh because it doesn't lend itself well to to interpretation and that means something i think if folks come out of this movie really confused and they spend a lot of time yeah. hitting their head against it like that's some value in itself and, and and in that sense, I think it is maybe the best bookend mm. we could hope for to his work. Um, I mean, I remember when people were saying the Ponyo might be his last work, and that was the bookend. Yeah. And people then were saying the same thing about the Wind Rises, and now people are you know probably going to say the same as I'm saying this about this, and then who knows? In five, ten years, he'll he'll give us one more th- film. Actually, you know, so um, when you're saying you're since you're talking about like okay, long term, yeah, uh, reputation of this movie, where does it stand for you? I will say soundtrack of the boy and the heron to me mm. is maybe the best part of the movie. I think even though you're, you're mentioning that there's a lot of quiet moments. Yeah. So this movie leverages the quiet moments as much as That's anything right. else. I would say that there are sequences in this movie that only work because of what Joe Hisashi does and what he brings to the table. Like if you listen to the, I spent a bunch of time listening to the soundtrack after watching the movie because I was trying to kind of understand what it was doing. I also had the chance to interview Joe Hisashi uh, before the movie came out in the U.S. Oh, that's I, awesome. For Crunchyroll News, he spoke about minimalism and how that was huge for him. Mm-hmm. Or rather, I read about, I read that he was very into minimalism and he mentioned in the interview, oh yeah, like uh, Philip Glass 
is someone I care a lot about. Arvo, Arvo Part is someone I care about. Um, Hisashi is someone who has like reached out to minimalist composers he loved back in the day and done concerts together of him. I feel like the boy in the heron of a lot of his work is one of those Miyazaki projects that very consciously like just dive deep, not necessarily into this sort of grand scale symphonic composition mm-hmm. he's done in previous productions, but to just go into minimalism to have songs that are just like dun 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 right for long periods mm-hmm. of time to not like get directly into the big cathartic emotions but to kind of go around and around them and around them mm-hmm. like for me the boy and the heron it's like it's like a wounded animal it's, it's scarred right it doesn't want you to touch it and so the soundtrack also sort of circles it warily it only occasionally really goes through the throat and makes you feel those like big cathartic feelings. Right. I mean, I think that's a good testament to how this movie really is the work of many individuals. It oh, isn't for sure. just, and I mean, maybe that's relevant if there is a key takeaway from our conversation as well. It's that, you know, this is, I mean, I'm even going to name this episode something Miyazaki because that's like, you know, we got to hit that SEO. But, the Dark uh, Souls of Miyazaki. No, that's not that's not what this is. Well, okay. Oh, my God. Actually, Adam, you just, okay. Well, you don't know what you Please just Please don't call you, it the Dark Souls of Miyazaki, just, Alex. I won't call it that, but you actually did scratch at something in my head that I didn't mean to talk about. And I was like, eh, it's not relevant, but now I'm going to okay. mention it. Um, But. You know, even though again, wait, Hidetaka Miyazaki is literally the name of the guy. Uh, yeah, it is. Oh, okay, yeah, no. I know, I know. Hold up, hold up, hold up. Let's not get. Let me finish my thought. Okay, um, sorry, but but it, it's a testament to the fact that there's many people who are involved in this. Yes. And even though I think the conversation at a, at a high level is going to be Miyazaki's next oeuvre or whatever, it, it really is the work of of many people. Mm. That said, you mentioned Dark Souls, and I will say that I had several moments while watching this where it evoked to me. Dark Souls. Yes. In the way that either it was the corridors of the of the rock or the caves and like it was the essentially the descent into a decaying world. Yeah. That particular idea is something that is explored several times in the worlds of of Dark Souls and I'm like is Miyazaki playing Dark Souls in his it's like a world of retirement <laughs> standing around and NPCs saying ha, 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 I, I, right. welcome to the world of the Wara Wara. Right. <laughs> Once upon a time, this was a thriving land. Right. And yet now the pelicans and the parakeets have taken over everything. Yeah. Perhaps everything will never be the same. So I, I highly doubt, okay, that Hayao Miyazaki is playing but Dark Souls. But you might not be wrong but... because you know what Hidetaka Miyazaki, the director of Dark Souls, was doing when he was a kid? He was reading fantasy novels. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> from well, the U.S. and Britain in like bad... Japanese translations. I mean, I think the, yeah. the, the the more specific point is that there's a common zeitgeist between all of these things, and that is the the decaying, dying world and the sort of descent into madness that I think you do see in all of these. Yeah. And again, Miyazaki is a leftist. So. He's someone who refused to come and collect his Oscar because of the Iraq War. Um, you can imagine what he thinks of the world today, yeah. right? And so, if the boy in the heron is his message to younger generations in a way can say is saying yeah i get it we broke everything it's a mess your life could be a total disaster but you have to keep going anyway which i don't know i mean i feel like a lot of people are trying to put that message forward right now but i guess it means something that miyazaki is doing it because miyazaki probably knows you watch his movies and you get a sense of what he hates and what he's angry at and there's a lot in the boy in the heron that is angry or sad or frustrated i think right but it's also pretty honest about what 
it's important to the main character, I guess. Like what Mahito cares about, like the people in the world are looking out for him. Um, sort of saying, the world of the dead is full of stuff, but what matters is the world outside the world of the dead, right? Right. You can't right. find salvation there. You can spend your whole life in animation, yeah. but it's not going to do anything for you. You now have to know. go outside and go to school. Now we know animation is the world of the dead. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you could say what it takes to make a work of animation these days uh, in the U.S. and in Japan. I mean, anywhere. I mean, what it takes to make a creative work anywhere that That's is true. actually, you know, um, you know, um, sincere. Yeah, uh, it, it is that, I think so. Anyways. All right, uh, Adam, on that note, I think we're we've hit the end. We're, we're talking about Dark oh, Souls. Oh, for sure. Crying out loud. <laughs> I, I will say. Uh, I definitely recommend if you watch this movie and you're very just confused and curious, seek out the writing about this film. There are a yeah. lot of critics on the internet who have written lots of stuff about this. I mentioned uh, Kevin Sirogeta, Matteo Watsky, another one, Autumn Wright, wrote several pieces about this for Pace. Right. Uh, David Elric wrote about the creation of the dub for IndieWire. Mm-hmm. They're just tons of people who've tried to make sense of this yeah. film and and like we hinted already there's so much to unpack here yeah. i mean there's people who've actually like don't just have dante's divine comedy on their shelf and have read the few segments of it that they needed to for an english paper in college but have actually read it and will dissect it for for this and make those comparisons because yeah. they're there to be made and so. is it actually that don't deep? listen to us hacks is it actually that deep i don't know i think I it's more know. like it's it's not so much deep it's fuzzy like you have but to you look closely at it People are going to be writing those English papers about this one. Yeah. Like there's enough it's, to it's unpack true. here that you can do that. And is it the one true interpretation? No, but can it be can it be argued? And is it, you know, interesting to argue it? And is the, the subject matter in the text? Then from as an English professor, you could say that's an A. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. So anyway. Very interesting movie. It is. I will say. It is. Um, yeah, so I, I to, to also echo what you were saying, Adam, it's like I don't know where it would sit in my own sort of estimation of Miyazaki's you know, Uvra, but mm. um, first you got to see future Boy Conan. That clearly, and then yeah. you can make your informed <laughs> choice. Yeah, I must be even more of a completionist. Yeah, no. no, I mean, if you ever need it for Anime Club, I can lend you the Blu-rays. I have them. Hmm. I would, I would say yes to that, regardless. So and I, I can, think it's. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to give them to you, so, <laughs> but you can borrow no, no, them. If no, you no, want. no, you. I, I just need them, need them for like a day, so that I can rip them onto my computer. Oh, and I, I can have digital true. copies. Yeah. We don't encourage piracy on this podcast. We don't encourage piracy on this podcast. But we do encourage sharing. Yeah, because it's very important. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. I didn't describe piracy at all. Don't mind what I said. Yep, yep, yep. (laughs) Anyways, um, okay, now we're definitely at the end of this. So, Adam, um, what is, uh, yeah, what's going on with you? What are some things you want to recommend? Where can people find you? You The good stuff. What are some things you want to recommend? So, you know, you know me. Am I still in a weird webtoon hole for some reason? Oh, you, yes. I have seen yes, you be I down am. this d- deep dark hole. <laughs> I, I feel like, and I don't know why, because I feel like I've had weird feelings about webtoons for a while. Like, do I understand this? Did no. we just set you on this path with, uh, you know, yes. Batman? <laughs> it's because I read Batman Wayne Family Adventures and thought, why don't I like this as much as I should? I feel like we <laughs> And su- I went on a webtoon odyssey to put my feelings in the context. I feel like we've truly succeeded as a podcast now. We've sent you God. down a deep dark hole. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what I'm about to recommend is actually not a webtoon at all. It's on a platform called Manta, Mm. which is a separate comics platform. It works a little differently where I think you can, it's more like Crunchyroll, I think, where you subscribe to read their comics instead of Mm. buying each one individually. But they have a particular series that I learned about because, um, one of the writers on Comics Beat that I sometimes contribute pieces to recommended it. 
it's a series called I think it's called Because I Love You, which is about 40, 50 short chapters or so on Manta. It is very different from a lot of webtoons. A lot of webtoons are soap operas or romantic comedies about people and their various relationships. It takes place over long periods of time and lots of cliffhangers and stuff. Because I Love You is not that. What I would say it is, it's more like a something like a memoir, like My Lesbian Experience of Loneliness, or even something like a manga explainer comic. Something like... Um, you have all of these manga series that are all like how do we explain this concept to people something like is love the answer which is like 300 page series about asexuality where the main character in college looks up a bunch of stuff about asexuality and goes what does it mean to be asexual what does it mean that people in my life are asexual what does it mean that i have a friend who's bi and yet like his friends don't believe he's bi because he's going out with another guy right things like this um because i love you is a series about a woman who's a writer and can no longer afford to pay the bills so she has to move back in with her mom who she loves but is also emotionally abusive and it's just a whole series about her realizing that her mom is abusive and then moving out and then realizing that her mother's behavior has affected her life and her personality in a way that can't fully be resolved by just moving out of her mother's apartment. Especially, I think the second half of the series is really interesting because that's when it really gets into, okay, you can't necessarily solve family abuse just by getting out of the situation. Like when you spend that much time with someone and when they have that much of an influence over your life, it takes a huge amount of work to sort of change these patterns in yourself. And you see how she works really hard to create some distance from her family and unlearn her sort of bad behaviors that have been passed on to her stuff like uh, seeking out relationships with people who take the lead but are also controlling because she herself can no longer really trust herself to do things on her own because she spent so long having other people trying to control her stuff like that i mean i can't say I have had relationships with family that don't quite match up to what this character goes through, but do sometimes feel similar just in terms of like some of the things people say, like there's one scene where she's telling like her mother in the story, like, Oh, you did this thing to me when I was younger. That kind of scared me. And her mother says, why do you only remember the bad things? Right. Mm. And I've heard people in my family say that to me. I've definitely, yeah. I've Even heard though that I line. think that person is not someone I feel as strongly about in that way, but I hear this and I go, wait a second, <laughs> right? It's just kind of tricky. And it's complicated because it's not that her mother isn't necessarily a two-dimensional villain or whatever. Part of the story is her understanding where her mother is coming from so she mm. can sort of move on as a person, right? But I think there's it, something universal it gets to that, at yeah. how... She's like, oh, I respect my mother protected me. I respect that she had to overcome all these difficulties to raise three children. And yet my mother threatened me with a knife because she got really angry at me. And I, I can't be okay with that, right? Like that's something that happens in the story that she has to work out. Jeez. Yeah. So very different tone than a lot of webtoons. I don't know if you compare it to other similar sorts of comics, if it really stands out. 
Like I think there could be a more complex version of the story that examines it from a lot of different angles, but it really is just a first-person narration story in rel- with like relatively simple and accessible art about someone coming to term with their abusive mom. Um, but for what it is and for like the avenue it's in, I think it's pretty good. And it has a lot of stuff in there that resonated with me um, as someone who's like had weird family stuff, I guess. Or like has seen other people have weird family stuff as well. Right, right. Yeah. Um, Cool. Um, Is there anything else? I mean, that's really what stood out to me. There's a lot of other stuff. Oh, I mean, I'll say the one show I've been watching currently, um, there is kind of like nominally an idol series called Bang Dream It's My Go, Mm -hmm. which is one of these shows from 2023 that was like a cult classic in the anime space. A lot of people, even folks who weren't into like the Bang Dream franchise of like shows about girls and bands said, oh, this is actually really good. Mm -hmm. Having watched about half of it, it's... The music scenes, it is. The music scenes don't stand out to me in the same way that like Bochi the Rock stands out. Right. But... The characters are really fun in that they're all awful in different ways, despite (laughs) the fact that this is like on the surface, a cute story about like teenage girls in high school in a band. Right. Like it has that kind of warmth to it. Always sunny in Philadelphia. Sort of. (laughs) It's like the intense shoujo melodrama of idol anime in a way. Okay. Like the main character accidentally stumbles into a band post breakup like different people in the band are manipulating each other to try to pull it back together. This reminds me of yeah. that one. Um, it's not a uh, super Sentai show you were telling me about. Oh, Don brothers. Yeah. There's some of that. I think Don brothers is more like a cute found family show. And this is a little meaner than that. Like, oh, you man. have people, okay. <laughs> you have people in this show who like are actively plotting against each other. There's a great character right. named Soyo who on the surface is very kind to everyone. But then you find out, oh yeah, she only wants to like use the main character to get the band back together so she can reunite with her girlfriend and cast her off. But then when the band succeeds, Soyo just gets really mad and she's like, how dare you succeed? Like you were supposed to help me get back with my friend and now you ruined everything. But she does it in a way that's just, you see her exterior cracking. There's this beautiful kind of melodrama where she's like sort of villainous, but also really pathetic. And the other characters realize it and you're saying, Oh, stop behaving that way. And then she starts crying. She's like, no, you can't say that to me. I've sacrificed so much for you. And that kind of thing. So if you're in like this kind of series that is still doing a show about cute girls in the band performing and stuff, but is also at the same time, weirdly detailed in terms of like put any two characters together and you will see how they'll start fighting and arguing with each other. Um, if you're in that kind of thing, I've been mostly liking it a lot so far for what it is. Nice. Yeah. You should remind me again for the next anime. Yeah. I mean, it's another show. Voting. I'm not going to, um, again, I don't like the music as much as the music in Bochi the rock, but right. it's more like traditional idol style music with the guitars, but there is a standout concert scene in a se- in the seventh episode that just like in Bochi, it's two full-length songs stitched together where the first one is a bomb where everything goes wrong. Right. The lead singer can't sing. I should also say this is a series where one of the main characters and the lead singer is debatably on the spectrum. And Got it's a it. whole thing about... So, arguably so is Bochi. Yeah. But specifically, like, the main character, not the main, not the viewpoint character, but, like, maybe the most sort of the emotional center of the story 
is someone who collects rocks, has multiple kinds of band-aids with different birds on them. Got it. Um, writes lyrics because she like struggles to express her feelings in words and is like right, extremely right. nervous of being on stage. Like it, it's surprisingly thorough about this stuff. And even like the third episode of the show is literally from a perspective, first person. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a series that pulls gimmicks like that. Like it will right, say, right. okay, you literally see through this character's eyes for the whole third episode. The seventh episode will just be a concert. It's really ambitious for the kind of show it is, which I think is why it captured people's attention because it's it's isn't always the case that you see um, shows like this just take big conceptual risks, but it is. That right there, that sounds like an Adam show. Uh, big exactly. conceptual risks. Big conceptual risks. <laughs> That's the Adam tagline. Yeah. Um, all right. So speaking of big conceptual risks. Yes. Um, so my thing that I wanted to mention is the new Flash run. Uh, by Simon Spurrier and Mike Dodato Jr. Oh yeah, Jr. the famous famous Simon Cy Spurrier. Cy yeah. Spurrier, yeah. I'm I'm a big fan of his work. Um, I was very excited to see him uh, pick up the Flash as a new ongoing, and very curious what he would do with it. Mm. And what we've ended up getting is this very surreal horror take on the Flash, which is okay. not what I expected necessarily. The Flash hasn't usually done that. Correct. Right? Uh, in a lot of ways, it feels like, um, you know, maybe. Th- uh, thematically somewhere halfway between uh, Immortal Hulk and a Grant Morrison comic. That is very strange. Didn't Grant Morrison write The Flash? But I think when he did, it wasn't... Um, I don't know that, that Grant sort of Morrison anyway. has had a big Flash run. Yeah, um, it wasn't a big one. I think he was only on the character for like two or yeah, three. I'm not sure. I'd, have to actually, I'd actually have to look that up. But I know he did do a, a Green Lantern run, which weirdly enough, this does remind me of. Oh, weird. But that Green Lantern run I did not like, whereas I do like this Flash run. Yeah. Um, it's really weird. It has actually a lot of meditation on learning to be still for a person who is that's really interesting. Always running. Um, I think that's actually kind of interesting. I, Adam, I would like to maybe try to do an episode on this at some point. Yeah. I think that'd be interesting. So we'll we'll reserve more commentary, but um, I think it's a it's a it, it works because of its writing. I think Simon Spurrier is always you know, been a very good writer. Um, it also works because Mike Dodato's Dodato Jr.'s art is has a sort of very surreal, you know, it's like a very realistic, but just opposed to the horror and everything else has this kind of surreal feel to it that yeah. works well in this context as well. So yeah, um would recommend. Correct DC me. has been hitting them out of the park recently. Yeah, no, they've been they, the, the idiot ball has been passed from yeah, DC to Marvel. Absolutely. Now everything Marvel does is bad. We should also DC talk about good. Birds of Prey sometime. The new Kelly uh, oh, yeah. Thompson, uh, co- you know, Birds of Prey. Who also used also to write good. for Marvel, right? Absolutely. Anymore. Yeah. Yep. So correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like the Flash as a character and as a body of work is, so from what I've heard, one of the all-time great kind of yes. meat and potatoes superhero characters in a way True. where specifically it's like if you show the best flash comics to someone whose idea of a superhero comic is i don't know like sandman or something mm-hmm. they'll go what is this but if you're someone who thinks about legacy right. about like what dc comics historically have done about how superhero comics are constructed and look like you can look at mark wade's one you can look at i guess jeff johns's run right. there's a lot there in terms joshua of, williamson too yeah, yeah. There's a lot there in terms of how to build out these stories that are classic superhero stories, but have a weight or like a sort of kind of personality to them. You don't always see in these kinds of comics. So one thing that I was going to add to that is that one caveat is that this is Wally West as the Flash, okay, not Barry Allen. 
Um, I think is Wally West the focus of Mark Wade's series? Yes. Well, okay. and and Jeff Johnson's series until Flash Rebirth, which is a whole other thing. Because I was also going to yeah. say like the different the fact that there's a distinct difference between Wally West and Barry Allen is something that also feels very foundational in Correct. Flash. Correct. Which is also why I had. I did not like Jeff Johnson's second t- like run on the Flash because yeah. I didn't like the return to Barry Allen. I, well, that was the new Fifty Two trying to do all of that. Because Johns was good. like, ah, yes. Yeah, so what if we go back to the past? We bring back the old Green yeah, Lantern and we bring back no. the thing just like how it was when you were a kid, right? I, yeah. I, one of the things that makes the DC Comics of today more interesting is that they fully have embraced accepting all of the above as foundational, and by having that legacy again, I think it be- makes the universe more interesting. Yeah. Oh, for sure. So, but yeah, but would would definitely recommend. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's there's, there's four issues. I think four issues exactly. Okay, yeah. so yeah. it's We're still. Do we know how many there's going to be? Um, it's an ongoing, so this could run. Okay, you know, this is one you hope will run for like sixty issues. You hope you get to that magic, you know, at least fifty issues to kind of, kind of really sink your teeth into. I mean, when will, does that ever happen? Well, with happen- Immortal Hulk, it did happen. It happened with Joshua Williams's run on the Flash as oh, well, right. which was even though it was Barry Allen, and ultimately I was like, it's kind of like take it or leave it for me. Mm. I very much enjoyed reading it. Okay, um, and I will say Joshua Williamson's current run on Superman might also be slowly inching its way to one of my favorite Superman runs. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. It's not doing anything fancy, but it's just solid. Right. Um, and I think has a very good understanding of Superman as a character and more importantly, Superman and Lex Luthor's relationship, yeah. which is oh, important. Neat. I mean, it's like the sort of thing so. where if you read a lot of superhero comics and you know how they put together and you right. read it, you recognize it. Yeah. You say, yep. this is a good production. And some yep. of this is understanding the type of art that you need on these books to yeah. make them work as well. So. But anyways, let's... Uh, I should gonna... also say, remember, they did Cy Spurrier Dirty with Hellblazer back in the day. He's right? coming back to it. He is, but only after... I know. ...an absence. Yeah. And and during that absence, he actually went and wrote some comics for Marvel, and now he's back at DC. So yeah. it's funny how that goes. It's true. So... So hopefully you don't screw him over this time. I know. I know. Uh, I mean, it's the big two. They will screw everyone over at some They'll point. They'll screw everyone over at some point. But but I will say this, Mark Wade, who said he would never go back to uh, writing comics at uh, DC Comics, is back writing comics at DC Comics because Dan Didio is no longer there. Go figure. So anyway, comics, y'all. I wonder if we could do an episode on Dan Didio. <laughs> Who's Dan Didio again? Uh, he was the former editor-in-chief at DC Comics. Oh, and like he was the editor-in-chief and some other titles. But he was basically the man in charge of DC Comics for a while, pretty mm. much. I think through the 2000s through like a few years ago. I see. It's like a good couple decades actually. Weird. So in charge of a lot of controversial decisions, including notably the first one that everyone hated him for was um, he wanted to kill off uh, Dick Grayson, Nightwing uh, during the, um, what was it? Crisis on Infinite. It was, it was not Crisis on Infinite Earths. It was Infinite Crisis Infinite or whatever Crisis. it was called. Yeah. It was the Jeff Johns one. Oh yeah. Um, I think that is Infinite Crisis. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, he basically got talked out out of doing it, but he was, he was pushing for that. Mm. And in hindsight, everyone was like, well, how could you kill Dick Grayson? And you know, I mean, well, I'm glad they, did, they could just but... bring him back like a year later. I mean, also, if they also you know, that was a time when people cared more about that. Yeah. Interestingly enough, devs had more weight a few decades ago than they do now. When I mean, the real problem is that any time you spend building up or undoing a death scene is time you could just spend with a character doing other stuff. Right. That's right. the real issue. Also, yeah. I 
Uh, anyway, I agree. He I, could just do six issues about Nightwing hanging with his friends and then right. solving crimes right. and stuff. Which also, uh, Tom Taylor's current run on Titans. Very good. Look, again, oh, nice. DC is just good right now. I'm I'm really enjoying my time with them. But we are overstaying our welcome, That's Adam. Right. Where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at WBNDEGO Wendigo. You can find me on Blue Sky at the same address. You can find me at cohost.cohost.org slash pig. You can find my newsletter, AnnieWire at AnnieWire.Ghost.io. In fact, I have a piece on the boy and the heron there if you want to read it and learn all about the boy and the heron. I've written some things for Crunchyroll News, uh, where I interviewed Joe Hisashi, as I said, and some other folks. I've written some stuff for Comics Beat. They just put out their best of 2023 roundup lists, and I have some blurbs there, so feel free to check that out. Or else am I... Maybe that's it. Oh, I mean, I had a piece come out in Anime Herald a little while ago about Razafon, so check that out if you care to. Yeah, still trying. I I think I'm right now trying to brainstorm more stuff I can put out there in 2024, so look forward to that. Nice. Um, Yeah, and it bears mentioning, this is our last recorded episode of 2023, although it'll air about mid-January. We're taking another well-earned break, so you guys probably won't tell. We'll not be able to tell that there will be a break. Um, And yes, with that, you guys can find me uh, and my work at sandcomic.com. And with that, thank you for joining us as always. Catch you next time.